So is the population growing completely out of control or are we headed toward absolute collapse? Because I'm old enough to remember listening to people like Paul Ulrich, Ulrich, Ulrich. You know, it's his fault. Having, it's his It's his fault for having a difficult last name. Um, predict that pretty much the world was going to end in the late 20th century. And for some reason, some of those predictions just didn't come true. And by some, I mean, really? all of them, all of them didn't come true. So today, what we're going to discuss is this, this question of, of population growth, population decline. Is it really as bad as the Malthusians say? And yes, we'll talk about Malthus. Or is it as bad as Elon Musk and Jordan Peterson say. So we're going to go through, we're going to look at the data, we're going to look at growth rates, we're going to look at fertility rates, and we're going to ask ourselves the question, is the population declining out of control? And if it is, is that a bad thing? Because a lot of people seem to think it's actually a good thing. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument brought to you by Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for being here. We would love to get to know every one of you in our community chat, which you can join by going to the link in the description of this show. Sign up, introduce yourself. We would love to get to know you and have your help in driving the direction of next week's show. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates for now. But other than that, a reasonably good guy. And then we have my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everybody. And then we have Doomer of Doomers, our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. The future is Detroit. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to put that on a mug. All right. And then we got our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I'm excited about today's conversation. Well, oh, good for you. All right. Here we go. <laughs> so, excited to hear a bunch of dooming. Yeah. No. No, this is, Look. We're, we're, there's actually a really, this, the problem we're going to discuss today, I have my glasses to look cool and pensive. The, uh, the problem that we have today actually has probably the best solution we've ever discussed on this show before, but let's get into the problem first. So the general argument goes something like this, and this kind of starts with, with Malthus, right? And for those of you who don't know Malthus, here I'm going to pull up some specifics just so I don't get this wrong. All right, Thomas Malthus, 1766 to 1834, was an English economist, cleric, and scholar influential in the fields of political economy and demography. In his 1798 book, An Essay on the Principle of Population, Malthus observed that an increase in a nation's food production improved the well-being of the population, but the improvement was temporary because it led to population growth, which in turn restored the original per capita production level. Essentially, he believed that we were headed for absolute disaster, and he believed this in the early 19th century. Right. So in the early 1800s. So a lot of his predictions didn't actually end up coming true. But then you fast forward to someone like Paul Ehrlich. Ehrlich? Ehrlich. Ehrlich. I might actually have that wrong as well. So somebody correct me. If- Again, I'm going back to it's his fault, <laughs> not ours. Um, and and he talked about like a, a whole host of predictions that, that he gave. Some of them were due to environment, but a lot of them had to do with population. He actually wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And, and he presumed the same sort of disastrous results that Malthus was talking about. He just thought it took a little bit longer time to develop. Now, it, here's the part where I, I want to be, you know, kind of somewhat fair to, you know, the, the side of this that believes that, you know, overpopulation is just going to destroy us. If, if you extrapolate out that, okay, the earth is the only place we got to live for right now. Get going, Elon. Right. And the earth has finite resources, right? So there's not an infinite amount of resources. Then theoretically, yeah, you can envision a world where we have 10 trillion people on the planet and there's not enough space and there's not enough resources and it's, and it's overpopulated and, and we starve to death and go to war on the whole deal. Right. That's, you, you could imagine that. You, you can also imagine when you look at things like the exponential growth of population over time. So, Hamilton, I want you to bring up the second link real quick. Sure. 
the second leak here, and we're just going to show you. So here we are in 2023. We have you know eight billion four hundred or eight billion forty five million, yeah, three hundred eleven blah blah blah. All right, so eight billion people. Scroll all the way down. Scroll the way down till you get to about 17. Okay. So in 1700, there were 610 million people in the entire, the entire globe. All right. By 1760, there was 770 million. By 1804, so this is right around when Malthus is writing his book, right? So he's grown up in a world where the population has essentially doubled within his lifetime. And He's starting to analyze that, well, okay, if we have this sort of exponential population growth over time. It hasn't, it hasn't doubled. It, it, it went from 500 million in 1600 to a billion in 1800. Oh, it I'm took, sorry. I'm sorry. I had it wrong. So yeah, yeah. 500 billion. It so took 200 was, years for it to double. 200 years. I apologize. I apologize. So the point is, is that there's been exponential growth and he's starting to extrapolate out that, okay, if we've had this much growth within my lifetime, because in his lifetime, you were starting to see developments. Um, you were starting to see improvements in food production and sanitary conditions and things like that. Um, it was kind of like right before the, or right around when the industrial revolution was starting to the kick first off one. the very first industrial revolution. And so he's, he's, He's saying like, okay, well, look, we've got poor people now. We've got people that can't afford to eat now. The, a, a significant amount of the population is still um, involved in agriculture in order to just feed the population. And in fact, the UK was doing significantly better than most of the world at that point. So you can, you can kind of sympathize with why he's coming to some of these conclusions. But in 1804, we've got a billion people on the planet. All right. So from all the way to the beginning of recorded history to 1804, that's how long it takes to get to a billion people. Now go all the way up to 2023 again. Okay. And now we're at 8 billion. So you, you can, you can kind of see where the concern rests is that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years of human history to get to 1 billion people. And then 200 years later, or a little over 200 years later, we're at 8 billion, right? So that's, that's exponential population growth. There's, there's, um, there's a better, not necessarily a better way to describe it, but but a, a better. No, 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 not, not There's a better way it, than your dumb way. No, Nick. no, no. Here's here's what I meant. There's a better way to um, articulate kind of the thought process that Malthus had when he was formulating his ideas. Hamilton, if you scroll to the bottom, I want to read a, a few things off for our audio listeners. If you're watching, you can just follow along with me. It, look at the bottom of this chart here. When you look at like the year 900 or the year 1000. So you're talking over a thousand years ago. This is like the time of like Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer, like the, the famous Byzantine <laughs> emperor, like yeah. long, long time ago. The world's population was in between 240 and 275 million people. So we'll, we'll round that around and we'll say about 250 million people. So we went from about 250 million people during like the height of the Macedonian Renaissance in the Byzantine Empire a thousand years ago to by... 1600 so it took 600 plus years six to 700 years for the population to double from about 250 million to 500 million right six seven hundred years it only took only 200 years for it to double again from 500 million to a billion and so malthus is looking at that and he's he's extrapolating backwards in time and saying well if it went 600 years to double and then 200 years to double 
It might only take another 100 years to double and then another yeah. 50 years to double. And then he just kept extrapolating outwards and thought eventually we're going to end up in a situation where we're crammed in like sardines and there's not enough resources. And then you're going to have what what um, what economists call or and um, demographers call a Malthusian catastrophe yeah. where the population collapses because of resource scarcity and then civilization itself basically crumbles and we get thrown back into the Stone Age. And Malthus's solution to fixing this problem <laughs> was um uh a bit controversial i think to say the least yeah, didn't think? he want to like relocate the poor to like live next to like swamps and catch cholera and he, he basically he, wanted to kill poor people he basically thought warren disease warren disease which would disproportionately affect kind of poorer people um would would be the solution to to a lot of these problems so that basically they were the I'm going to go conspiracy theory real quick. So kind of like what China seems to be doing for its elderly population by creating all these viruses to kill them off. <laughs> how no, dare, how China, dare you? That was a bat. We're going to get to today that China actually is realizing that they have a completely opposite problem. Yeah, we're, we're going to talk about that. But we, we just wanted to set the picture because, again, we're trying to be intellectually honest for why would some of the people come to the conclusions that they did. Now, here's where it gets a little bit crazy. Let, let's go. Now, again, when you're talking about Malthus in the 1800s, um, I'm a little bit more sympathetic when we're talking about Paul Ehrlich, 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 whatever. When we're talking about Paul, right, <laughs> Paul go, E, go to the go to the first go to the first one. We're gonna here here are some of the predictions that he was making in the 60s and 70s. Population will inevitably and completely outstrip whatever small increases in food supplies we make. Paul confidently declared in April 1970 in Mademoiselle. The death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. So did that happen? Uh, no, not even close. In fact, the opposite, the opposite took place. But Paul's not done. Most of the people who are going to die in the greatest uh, cataclysm in the history of man have already been born, wrote Paul in 1969 in an essay called Eco-Catastrophe. By 1975, some experts feel that food shortages will have escalated the present level of world hunger and starvation into famines of unbelievable proportions. Other experts, more optimistic, think that ultimate food population collision will not occur until the decade of the 1980s. Once again, not only wrong, not only incorrect, not only... It's not like... Okay, things got bad, but they didn't get anywhere near bad nearly as fast as Paul thought they would. No, the opposite was true. The absolute opposite was true. And we're going to actually prove this here in a second. Um, Paul then sketched out his most alarmist scenario for the 1970 Earth Day issue of The Progressive, assuring readers that between 1980 and 1989, some 4 billion people, including 65 million Americans, would perish in the great die-off. I mean, at what point? Do you start to look at this guy? Well, I remember the great die off. Don't you remember? <laughs> do, Early do you remember, 80s, do you remember great when 65 die million Americans that? died? Um, yeah. So again, so he, he thought that 65 million Americans were going to die basically of starvation. Four another, billion people. Yeah. Well, four billion I, people were, I, during I the ask, Reagan administration. <laughs> I'd like to ask a question real quick. Yeah. Because the fact that if you, if you look at birth rates and how many children people had. Yeah. It's not that they had less children back then. It's that they didn't survive a lot of them. And your a lot of your people die off young. They they don't they're they they're not living as long. And um, but our birth rates are actually lower now than they were back then. Yeah, it's just less people are dying. And and it seems to me like he's not paying attention to the fact that there's a reason so many people are surviving. <laughs> it's because we're innovating and things are getting better. Well, that would be a crazy crazy. Uh, he and Malthus both ignored a critical 
flaw in and and that, that that led to the complete collapse of their prediction. Well, wait, wait, wait. Before we get to that, because there's one All other right. thing. There's I. I like where you're both going with this, but we've got to hammer something home first. And I want to hammer it home this way. Go to the next link with the Simon and Ehrlich wager. There we go. All right. So the Simon uh, Ehrlich wager. Oh, I wager, was going to get to this, Nick. This is what we're doing before we go yeah. into the whole explaining what they got wrong. The Simon Ehrlich wager was a 1980 scientific wager between business professor Julian Simon and biologist Paul Ehrlich. Here, Betty let me help. Hold on. Word association. He's an Ehrlicher. Just, just call him Ehrlich. I don't know what that means. I don't, know I, either. I don't either, but it's a word association thing. Now he will never forget that it's Ehrlich. 19, she's probably right. Actually, 1980 scientific wager between business professor Julian Simon and biologist Paul Ehrlich betting on a mutually agreed upon measure of resource scarcity over the decade leading up to 1990. The widely followed contest originated in the pages of Social Science Quarterly, where Simon challenged Ehrlich to put his money where his mouth was. In response to Ehrlich's published claim that if I were a gambler, I would take even money that England would not exist in the year 2000, <laughs> Simon offered to take the bet, or more realistically, to stake $10,000 on my belief that the cost of non-government controlled raw materials, including grain and oil, will not rise in the long run. You need to understand what's going on here. Ehrlich has made the argument that the population is, is growing and expanding so quickly that we're going to so quickly outstrip resources that people are going to die and we're going to fight massive wars over the little remaining resources that we have left. And now this guy, Simon, Julian Simon, a business professor, not an environmentalist, not a biologist, not, you know, none of these things comes in and goes, I'm willing to bet that's not true. In fact, I'm willing to bet it's the opposite. He goes, Simon challenged Ehrlich to choose any raw material he wanted and a date more than a year away. And he would wager on the inflation adjusted prices decreasing as opposed to increasing. Now Ehrlich got to choose. This is how confident Simon was. He basically looks at Ehrlich and he goes, you know, you keep making all these like clickbait. He probably didn't call it that at that point, but clickbait headlines, clickbait, you know, things. And none of them are coming true. So if, if you want to say this with this amount of confidence, why don't you put some money down? I'll even let you pick the resources. So Ehrlich wasn't nice about this, right? He was picking the ones that he thought for sure, for sure. What did he pick? He chose copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten. The bet was formalized on September 29th, 1980 with September 29th, 1990 as the payoff date. So once again, Ehrlich not only got to pick, he got to get to pick the date. He got, and he thought for sure, because in 10 years he's predicting mass starvation and global population. I mean, 65 million Americans would be dead because of starvation. And Simon says the opposite's going to be true. And then he lets Ehrlich pick the resources. He lets Ehrlich pick the date. And what happened? Ehrlich lost the bet as all five commodities that were bet on declined in price from 1980 through 1990, the wager period. Christian, how could that be possible? Two of them fell in half yeah. in terms of price. Yeah. We're not saying it was like cheaper by a penny. Every single one fell by inflation adjusted terms. And I think the vast majority of them fell in absolute terms as well, even accounting for inflation, even not accounting for inflation. And two of them fell by over half in price. And this kind of, I think, gets to the heart of the flawed thinking that people like Malthus and people like Paul Ehrlich have used for, I mean, at this point for over 200 years. And it, there's two components of it that, that Ehrlich has just consistently gotten wrong. By the way, he's still alive and he's still 
denies ever being wrong about anything because obviously he's because he's a tenured academic at Stanford University. He's an expert. You're supposed yeah. to trust it's the experts. It's because they change the goalposts every single. It's like Christian when he's <laughs> talking about elections and he like predicts the election, but then when it gets closer, he adjusts his prediction. <laughs> uh, it's exactly he, what no, he, no, he doesn't no, adjust the no, prediction. Er, Ehrlich adjusts the he prediction after the election. Right? <laughs> like, he doubles down. Er, Ehrlich will make a crazy prediction, like you know Garfield's going to be elected president, and then after the election when Garfield really wasn't elected president or looks like yes he was he totally i wasn't wrong i didn't hey, say that i'll have you know that the republicans stole that election from garfield <laughs> no, no 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 he 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 absolutely won the election of 1888 and they stole it from him <laughs> well, right, what's really interesting is that he you know you talk about these commodities and uh, uh resources that are scarce and what what would end up killing people off little did he know it wouldn't be uh, food resources being scarce. It's probably going to be like common sense resources being scarce <laughs> and people not knowing where the round peg goes. Oh, yeah. so, 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 so this gets to the two. <laughs> so she went they, there. I told you she's, she's going full Tina today. So they, this gets to the two things that the Malthusians consistently get wrong. And by the way, when we talk about the Malthusians, they're not just, they, they didn't just exist 200 years ago. They didn't just exist in the 1970s. They're still around today at the yeah. WEF. Yeah. And here's the two things, technological growth and the inherent value and worth of a human person. Consciousness is precious. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a resource. And, and once humanity for thousands of years, we treated humanity as, as basically like, like, I mean, effectively a slaves, right? I mean, slavery existed in every society around the world. Virtually every religion practiced it. The vast majority, I mean, look at Rome, look at China, look at Persia, look at Sub-Saharan Africa, look at the, the, the New World, the yeah. Americas. It existed everywhere. And if you weren't a slave, there was a really good chance you were a serf or you were some sort of equivalent, right? People were effectively property for political rulers for the vast majority of history. They, they, were, they were subjects. And- they were treated as such. They were treated as just sophisticated cattle, basically. And it wasn't until, I would argue, the last 500 years or so that we stopped treating people as a detriment, yeah. as just another mouth to feed or as cannon fodder for a battlefield. And we started treating them like a valuable resource in their own right. Humanity is precious. Consciousness is infinitely valuable. And it's through those things that you that, that human beings can come up with things. They can they can give you the second point that I brought up, which is technological innovation. More people, more minds working on a problem equals a higher likelihood that problem will be solved through technological breakthroughs. This is why more people is is a good thing, not fewer. When it, and it, and it, and when you put those two things together, Nick, what you end up getting is an explosion in population at the same time that the prices for things collapses because we come up with new innovative ways to do things. Think about farming, for example. Thousands of years ago, I was I think I was telling you this last night, that, that at the end of the Neolithic age, we actually had a population collapse. It's a widely studied phenomenon, and there's there's tons of debates on why there was this, this massive population collapse during the Neolithic age. And one of the theories was that once we settled down and we stopped you know, hunting the buffalo on the plains and we settled down in... Well, I, they weren't doing that in, the, in Mesopotamia, but you get the point. Once we stopped being hunter gatherers and we became, you know, civilizations, you know, usually cl clustered around like rivers and coastal um, coastlines in places like Mesopotamia or China. And, and we started creating cities and we developed agriculture. 
our population collapsed potentially in part because of the initial inefficiency of agricultural methods at the time. Well, and and, and as you mentioned, like living in conjunction with animals mm-hmm. and like the diseases, the output yeah. of of farms was way lower than hunting bison or something like that, or, or hunting deer or elk and living like hunter gatherers. But guess what? Today, look at how efficient agriculture is today versus you know where it was two thousand, oh, three, it, four thousand years ago. Uh, up like a hundred years ago in the United States, I forget what percentage of the population was engaged in agriculture, but it was It was huge, and now it's like three percent. And, and it's not that food production has gone down. It's gone up significantly. Why? Well, because of capital improvements that allow us to be a lot more efficient with respect to the output and the yields and, and how we do and how we protect crops and everything else. And, and, and it's interesting because if, if you look at, again, if you, if you look at the commodities that he chose, if you look at the resources that he chose, again, based off of his predictions, this should have been a blowout. This should have been an absolute blowout, but it just goes to show, it just goes to show that when you allow, when we talked, we did a Wyman about this, where we talked about how natural resources are not resources until a human mind makes them so, right? Until a human mind makes them so. Like, so for instance, for instance, the cow was something that was just out there eating your grass and destroying your vegetables until good ranchers decided that the best way that we could utilize this cow, all right, was to, was to go work with farmers that, were, that, that had captured these cows that were destroying their crops. Good ranchers started this? Good ranchers started. This is all good ranchers. You can look this up. You can look this up in a book I'm about to write, right? Good ranchers teamed with the farmers that understood that we could utilize these natural resources, such like a, a pig. Now, you could have just had a pig out there destroying your garden, but no. No, these farmers found out that pigs could also make bacon. In fact, pigs could turn poison ivy and pigs could turn worthless vegetables into bacon. I mean, that's incredible. That is a miracle, right? And good ranches said, you know what? We want to partner. We want to partner with all the farmers that have discovered this miraculous transition of vegetables into bacon. We want to talk about these people that chose how to make grass into ribeye, right? And, and now, and now they've even, now they're even offering wild caught seafood. Yep. Right. Wild caught seafood. That means it didn't, they didn't go into some, some little seafood concentration camp where they're just like, you know, pushing it out. No, no, no. Wild. They went out into the oceans, right. To, to hunt down the most delicious seafood you could possibly have and bring it directly to your door. If you ever wanted an example of why all of these people were wrong and good ranchers is correct, right? This is it. The fact that you can go using promo code, Nick, you can go and get $25 off your order. You can get free shipping. And if you subscribe, if you go into one of the subscriptions, you're going to get two pounds of ground beef every month for free, for free people for two years, for two years, for two years. That's, That's, that is, that is an incredible offer. So go look at that. And again, we really appreciate not only Good Rancher's contribution to this podcast, but Good Rancher's comp- contribution to the argument that we're making now for human innovation and finding ways to be able to use resources effectively and efficiently in order to get them to the customers. That's actually a really good point that like- I know, the that's existence, why I made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, here's what I mean. Like, like the, the, the existence of a company like Good Ranchers disproves the whole Malthusian catastrophe theory. And, and, and the reason why is again, because people are valuable and technological growth makes things more efficient with time. If technological growth was stagnant as it was for thousands of years, yeah, the population's not really going to grow that much, right? It, it yeah. took us, it took us 1800 years after Christ, not even talking about BC, it took us 1800 years to get to a billion people. Yeah. And, and then it took us less than 200 years to get to 8 billion yeah. after that. So like, 
I, I, what's incredible though is that that is the mindset that has led to in some countries some really disastrous policies yeah. that quite frankly have killed off hundreds of millions of people. So in some ways, Ehrlich was actually right. Hundreds of millions of people did die. But the reason that hundreds of millions of people died was because of the same policies that people like Paul Ehrlich himself were advocating for. For example, we don't actually have this pulled up, but I I, I was doing some research into him. Um, we've actually written some Y minutes actually about him before. We, we did a Y minute on um, why Japan's population is collapsing. And we talked about him briefly. We're we're about to do a Y minute um, on something somewhat similar with China. And Ehrlich went out there, and and when he was making his arguments in the seventies, um, he he was going out there saying things like countries that refuse to implement draconian population control measures, um, they should be blockaded, and we should just force them to starve to death. And he was saying that about like countries like India, and the Chinese Communist Party actually looked at many of Ehrlich's very outrageous claims and concluded, oh my gosh, we're first in line because we have over a billion people. We're going to be the first country that's going to go through this Malthusian catastrophe. And their response to Ehrlich's hyperbolic claims that ultimately all of them, all of them ended up being incorrect was they implemented a policy infamously known as the one child policy that led to disastrous results. And I think we're going to get to that today. Wait, you're telling me, you're telling me that an authoritarian government decided to trust the experts and it turned out to have devastating effects for their population. That's crazy. Who could have ever predicted anything like that ever happening ever? Anyway, <laughs> let's, let's go to our next, let's go to our next thing. Cause this is going to be the last point that we make. Um, yep, the last, the last point that we make on, on kind of why they did it, why did they all get it so wrong? And then we're going to talk about the current situation. We're going to, we're going to show you population numbers and not just global population numbers. We're going to show you population numbers kind of by continent, by, by country, because it's fascinating to watch this phenomenon only taking place in certain areas and not in others. But this is, this is really instructive. If you look at this graph, and for those those of our uh, audio listeners, by the way, by the way, I, I want to say thank you. We we had some people that are part of our community chat. Some of them uh, both watch or listen, and they told us once they're like, "Hey, Nick, you know, sometimes you guys do things on the video that doesn't necessarily translate to the audio." And they they specifically brought up that there was a couple of times we did this to each other where. One of us would say, you know, wait a second, I'm just going to complete my point and, and then you can go. And they're like, you know, on the audio, it, it kind of sounds rude. And I just want everyone to know, everyone to know that's listening at home on audio, that when I do that, I'm just trying to, you know, sometimes we clip these up into smaller clips and sometimes I'm trying to get out of point and that's where I don't, I'm not trying to be rude, but when they do it to me, it's because they're rude. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was going to be something there at the end. I was waiting for it. Uh, good ranchers would never do that. No, I'm kidding. All right, there we go. This graph proves the whole technological growth yes. and the value of humanity. Because because what this shows, and this this goes back to 1820, you can really go, but but essentially when you look at what it, what this graph depicts is the global population with the number of people living in extreme poverty. And what you find is that in 1820, you had a billion people and roughly 85% of them were living in what would be considered extreme poverty. Now you flash forward and this only goes to 2015 and you have 7 billion people. And now out of 7 billion people, so you, you've seven X'd the population from 1820. So you, you would assume, based off of everything everyone is saying, that now we're going to have 7 billion people, you know, probably 90, 95% of living in extreme poverty. 
it's 20%, less than 20%. So at the same time that the population was increasing exponentially, and it's again, it's not as if the earth created new resources, right? All of a sudden, extreme poverty plummeted. And this is not just in the West, right? It, it took place significantly in the West. This is all over the world. You saw the amount of extreme poverty dipping significantly. Now, obviously, some areas are a lot poorer than other ones. But this is nuts. This should not be possible. But it goes back to the point Christian was making before. When you see a human being as nothing more than a mouth to feed, right, or someone that potentially is going to go to war or steal from you, well, then, yeah, you see people as being the problem. You see them as being a virus. You see them as the way they're being described by so many people on the, the tolerant left as a cancer, right? But when you actually see people as having the capacity to, to innovate and design and to find efficiencies. Now, does, does everybody do that? No. But when you set up the sort of systems, and, and amazingly enough, it's when you, set, when you set up systems which actually incentivize people to do the right thing, you get a much different, you get a much different outcome. And what I think is fascinating is, is what you see actually taking place in the, you know, when you start to see this, this major population growth combined with drastically increasing wealth across the board, the innovation that you see taking place is actually a revolution around property rights, a revolution around freedom of inquiry with respect to scientific research, uh, a revolution because Adam Smith published uh, Wealth of Nations in 1776, I believe. So you start to see this, this idea that no free market economics and a, a greater, again, which free market economics also helps drive scientific inquiry. These things all massively contributed to increasing the amount of wealth available for everyone. And what's amazing is we've gotten to the point where wealth has been increased for everyone comparatively. I realize that some people still live in absolute poverty, but comparatively speaking, this shouldn't have happened. And so we have to actually look at what were the things that took place. And I would argue, going back to Christian's comment, is that when you had economic systems that were designed around serfs and lords or, or you know, some sort of like, you know, hierarchy based off of just hereditary title and, and people were seen as vassals to be expended or to be just, just used up and thrown away, well, then, yeah, people weren't able to flourish. But when you started to create a mechanism whereby using their talents, using their skills, owning property, they could improve their situation over time, that's what they did. And, and does, does all of this happen without any flaws or any hiccups or any, but no, of course there's negative externalities to, to things like growth, but overwhelmingly positive compared to any of the predictions from the Malthusius. So it's just, I think it's really important to kind of point that out. And so next let's, let's, I think we got, do we have a couple of questions? We have a super chat from Angel D who asks, what is the definition of extreme poverty here? I, I so in, this in the graph specifically oh. what it's referring to as extreme poverty. So Christian extreme poverty is addressed it in the chat, but go ahead and address okay, it. For extreme, audio. So in this graph, it says extreme poverty is defined as living at a consumption or income level below. What is it? 1.90 a dollar 90 cents per, per day, day on an international basis. So what yeah. they're trying to do there is, is, um, First off, it's adjusted for inflation for, for people that were asking that. Secondly, it's also adjusted for the, the different uh, cost of living in certain places. So this is on like an international scale. This isn't based on like just the U.S. or based just like in the Congo or something like that. Yeah. So 
This is actually a pretty good metric. Yeah. This is, it's not perfect, but it's a really good metric to they're, define. They're trying to be intellectually honest in the way yes, that they measure this. To, to define the number of people living in extreme poverty. And and I just want to go through this one more time for the audio listeners who yeah. can't see the graph. By the way, if you can see, if, if you're listening to us and you're not watching on YouTube or any other platform, go and look this up for yourself when you get a chance. Like maybe you're watching the podcast when you, if you're driving, don't, don't look at while you're <laughs> driving. But when you get home, look up, Type in number of people in extreme poverty, 1800 to today, something along those lines. And you will be given a graph that's very similar to the one that we are looking at on this podcast right now. And and what you see is just an incredible divergence really post-World War II in, in terms of, of before the Second World War, the overwhelming, like plus 75% of the entire world's population were living on the inflation-adjusted equivalent of less than $2 a day. And today, it's 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 completely inversed. It, well, it's less you know, 75% of people plus over 75% of people are not living in that level of extreme poverty. Well, that's the because FDR time, saved us. You oh, guys. my yeah. gosh. At that's the that's same what the time, left would say. At the same time that the the amount of people living in the world has gone from, I mean, less than two billion. I think it was, I think that we hit about two billion in the 1920s. So we went from two billion a century ago to eight billion today. That's a four X increase. Well, at the same time that the the amount of poverty in the world has has plummeted. Yeah. Well, there's to, to give you in absolute numbers, there's fewer people living in. Extreme poverty today was seven billion people than there were in eighteen twenty. Yeah, not even relative. People. Not even relative. Actual numbers. Actual numbers. That that's incredible. All right, we got a question here from James. Do you think the population growth is connected to our creation of electricity and fuel one hundred plus years ago, and the fact that we now have cheap energy, which sustains our current population growth? Oh, one hundred percent. It's it's a major factor. If if you actually looked at how most people, you know used, you know, the, the, the sources they use for like their lamps and stuff like that. It was, it was whale oil, right? And this, we, yeah. we did this, we did a funny wine minute once where we talked about that, you know, <laughs> Nelson Rockefeller did more to save the, the whales than any animal rights organization ever conceived of in part because he found a way to make really, really cheap kerosene. Cause and, we don't and, harvest whales for blubber anymore. <laughs> well, the, the, the interesting fact here is that, um, Rockefeller wasn't the first to to recognize some of the benefits of of you know oil crude oil and using it as kerosene and stuff like that. What he was really good at is is finding about three hundred additional uses for the byproducts um, of of making kerosene. And look, there's 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 reasons to like and admire Rockefeller. There's reasons to not like or admire Rockefeller. But it is important to understand that. It, it was standard oil, which essentially dropped the price of kerosene so significantly as to make it affordable for poor people. And, and it drastically increased the productive capacity of, of Americans across the board. And not to mention all the, again, all the other products that were now made that used to just get thrown out. This is another thing that I think is important. People look at capitalism. It's like, oh, it's just consumerism and it's excess and everything. No, if, if you're if you're actually engaging in, in proper capitalist innovation and development, you're not just you're not just looking at it from how do I make the quickest buck? You're actually making it as how do I use my resources efficiently as possible 
so as to keep the prices low so I can appeal to the largest audience, the largest customer base possible and prevent my competition from taking my customers. Like that all, that all factors in the companies that don't do that well, go out of business until of course the government shows up and subsidizes them because they've invested in lobbyists. There's two things that I want to read off that I found in the chat that I think are, are, <laughs> one's kind of funny and the other one is is a really interesting question that I think is going to get to the rest of this episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian Betts writes, Our why friend. and how, um, yep, why and how populations grow and how and why they shrink is well understood. Oh, whoops, my chat just moved. Is well understood and taught in basic education. Well, apparently it's not taught to the members of the WEF. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the reason that we're doing this episode is because, I mean, I have conversations with people that are apolitical. I have conversations with people on the left. I have conversations with even some people that, that would identify as, as very moderate conservatives. And even to this day, I'm still being bombarded with, with this myth of overpopulation. It is a myth. It is a myth. You can look at this graph that I'm staring at right now. And, and you cannot tell me that more people is going to lead to a complete catastrophe because more people is inherently a good thing. Because guess what? As another person brought up in our chat, um, uh, um, Trent, Ro uh, Trent Rojack uh, writes, so people more, um, so people inherently make things better. Wow. Shocking. <laughs> I know it is shocking. It's it, like, like again, it's shocking to people like Paul Ehrlich and, and Thomas Malthus and apparently the people at the WEF, but like, no, more people inherently is a better thing because people are a valuable resource. They can come up with things. You want more people, you want more minds working on problems. Yeah. And we've seen as more minds get brought up into this world, we've been able to solve a lot of problems that have plagued us for centuries or thousands of years. Here's the second question that I think is going to get to the heart of, of the rest of this conversation. This is from uh, somebody who writes, uh, question, would a 75% population cut in 100 years help people thrive? My take on that is no, it would lead to the zombie apocalypse. Well, we're, we're going to, yeah, but we're if gonna... you Google it, I, like I did like a very su simple Google search um, saying, you know, population collapse, what would happen? And there are a lot of folks who, I mean, it's, it comes right up on Google saying, oh, here are all the wonderful things that would happen if, if our population basically crashed Well, and, and, it lists like 10 different things that would be better, you know, for because of population collapse. Do they yeah. all have to do with the environment? Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. Like well, I me, said, the myth won't die. Well, let me. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I would I would say the same thing. It's to, to Brian's point. I don't think it's necessarily something where <laughs> I don't think it's difficult to understand that things like wars, famines, fertility rates, all of these things affect population. That part, I think I agree with him that that's fairly well understood. The The problem becomes is like, okay, if it's fairly well understood and if it's taught in basic education, someone's going to need to explain to me why we keep looking at experts like, you know, Paul Ehrlich and, and Malthus and the WEF and Bill Gates and come to the conclusion that, wow, these guys are really onto something. And that's where I talked about up, up front, the, the nugget of truth here, the kernel of truth is, is that yes, if there was again, 10 trillion people on the planet, we could all, we could all anticipate some real problems with that. But the question is in, in the response to that is okay, but people also adapt. That doesn't mean that every single individual adapts perfectly. That doesn't mean every single individual contributes the exact same with respect to, you know, productivity within the marketplace. We're not claiming that. What we are saying is that the evidence seems to overwhelmingly suggest 
that more people has not been the overwhelming burden on the planet. More people and more minds looking at particular problems have actually contributed to so many of the, the successes that we see with respect to feeding people and carrying them in medical care. Now, there, there is an important question to be asked is like, okay, I'm not saying that population growth in and of itself is just a, a wonderful, glorious thing guaranteed, right? No, no problems whatsoever. I'm saying that when you have population growth within the proper incentives within a society, which is to say that, you know, people respect one another, they're, they're free to pursue, um, you know, their occupations, they're, they're free to own property, they're, they're able to do all of these things. You have a positive feedback loop in the incentive structure, which leads to people cooperating and actually producing good things. You could imagine a scenario where, yes, as soon as someone was born, we take them away and we give them over to some sort of government agency that trains them to all be, you know, I, I don't know, freaking killer racist. Yes. Okay. That would be a bad, a bad thing to happen. But that's not what's going on here. Right. There, so we're not, we're not saying that overpopulation can't ever happen and mm -hmm. that being truly overpopulated wouldn't be bad. Yeah. Uh, we're not saying that, but we are saying that their estimates are kind of out of whack. Well, I'm, I'm also saying that this is what happens and you see this in economics a lot. This is what happens when a scientist or an economist or somebody else takes human beings, right. And puts them in an Excel spreadsheet and then just looks at them by a couple of different factors or numbers and then extrapolates out from that 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now, without realizing that no flesh and blood people with a mind actually adapt and change behaviors, right? Adaptation is one of the, the most significant attributes of, you know, humankind. And when you don't properly take that into effect, well, then you're, you're, you're looking at your world within a microcosm. You're looking at your world in the present and everything that happened before. And then you're just predicting that, well, yeah, it's, it's just going to go on like this. Um, we got another question here I want to get to. Jim Ross, thank you very much for the uh, super chat. Years ago, cartoons used to show a long-haired, bearded male carrying a sign, the world will uh, the world will end tomorrow. And someone saying, didn't I see you yesterday? Now they are population and climate experts, but still forecast doom. And, and we're going to get also to why is that? Like, what? why is it that some of these theories persist? The the first reason that we've given is because there's a, there's a kernel of truth. If you don't actually you know, property take into account how people adapt. But the other argument that we're going to use is I, I think a, a little bit more just kind of cultural in nature on, on why this happens. Never doubt this. Once a certain political narrative has become popular and politicians are the ones controlling a significant amount of the funding for the science, or you have a particular industry that makes a lot of money off of whatever the current narrative is, and they have a lot of lobbying power there is a huge incentive to keep that narrative going. All right. Solyndra had a huge incentive to make sure that Barack Obama got elected president because if he got elected, they knew they were getting a massive bailout. They did. And lo and behold, they did. So we need to understand, and this is again, something soul talks about a lot. And this applies to both sides. I'm not, I'm not saying this is all a phenomenon on the left. When you create a financial incentive for a particular narrative, People will defend that narrative even when the overwhelming evidence suggests that it's no longer valid. And, and that's very dangerous. Okay, 
Let's go into real quick. We got a super chat from Yo, Angel sorry. D. Real quick. Yeah. Uh, what about the effects of pollution? Climate change, BS aside, current industries such as mining and oil have tremendous capability to pollute and make resources toxic: fish, crops, soil, etc. No, no. That that is an excellent point. A- again, this is something where I, I can look at I can look at the environmentalists and when they say, "Well, what about all these things?" I'm like, "No, I agree." When you're talking about pollution, when you're talking about obvious you know, human related activity, which contributes to, you know, the defiling of, you know, pristine nature or stuff like that. There, there's, there's mechanisms that should be used in order to curb that. The question is, is what are the best mechanisms to do it? Like I'm a big fan of property rights because I believe that people actually do a much better job of taking care of their property. Um, then they do property that's owned in common. There's an economic theory called tragedy of the commons, which talks about how when a particular resource is not owned by anybody, there tends to be a lot worse exploitation of the resource because every fish you don't catch is a fish someone else is going to catch. Yeah. Think cobalt mines in (laughs) Congo. I mean, they're sitting on top of some incredible natural resources, but they are in extreme poverty. So, yeah, so, so there's, there, there are mechanisms that you can put in place. What you don't want is government control over the resources, Because again, when you point to the countries that have strong government control over the resources, China, Venezuela, Russia, do any of those countries have an environmental policy you would like to emulate? If the answer is no, well then, okay, maybe we should take that into consideration. Okay, we, but what about we read greedy Jim Ross's uh, super chat, right? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. What about greedy corporations, Nick? Would they not uh, use the resources any worse or so, any better? Well, here's the thing to keep in mind. Yes, a, a, a greedy corporation, which, which by the way, there's a difference between greed and self-interest, right? And so the question is this, how do you set up your incentive structures within an economic system to where you, you, you depress or punish greed while recognizing that self-interest is just a necessary component. You waking up in the morning, taking a shower and brushing your teeth is rooted in self-interest. Greed is when you now take self-interest to a degree where it's like, I don't care how this negatively impacts or unethically impacts somebody else, right? It's not greedy to try to want to beat your competition at providing goods and services more effectively and efficiently. That's self-interest, okay? That's perfectly fine. It's, it's a motivating capacity within any sort of free market, econ- any economy, period. So, okay, what, what do you do? Well, first of all, if a corporation um, engages in, in, a, in a heavy degree of pollution, like we all understand that a certain amount of pollution is, is going to take place, right? But, but if they're poisoning the river to where they're making the groundwater or they're making the river completely untenable, should there be punishments for that? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because it's a trespass. You are violating right? You are violating the property of other people. You are conducting something that, that negatively impacts others. It's what we call a negative externality. And you should have to pay for that. And one of the best ways that you do that is by respecting property rights. Because if you pollute and I'm downriver and it affects me and I can sue you, right? Now, all of a sudden I get a big civil, you know, I get a big civil award. Now you as a company have a proper incentive to mitigate the way that you're doing business because you don't want to get sued by everybody down the river. Now, a lot of governments will come in and say, no, 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 we've designed a particular mechanism for, you know, you have to implement this policy in order to prevent pollution. Let's assume some compromise. If the government wanted to say, if you pollute this much, you have to pay or you have to mitigate that some way. Um, what we what we call when you have to pay an additional tax, what we do, we call that a Pagovian tax. So that's where I pollute, I have to pay a tax and the tax goes directly into mitigation of the pollution, right? That. Some work better than others, and it's not a great system, but I get it. Um, another mechanism that so you can do. So it's basically like the uh, climate religions 
equivalent of indulgences. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the other the other thing that you can do is you can tell a corporation that look, if you pollute to this degree, um, you, you or you have to mitigate pollution. The problem that a lot of governments have had is that they've come in and said you're going to mitigate it this way. And that doesn't allow for innovation within the marketplace. If you tell them you have to mitigate it to this degree, and then you allow them to innovate and come up with, with interesting solutions for how to do that, you'll get a better result. So I don't think, <clears throat> I am not someone that believes that, you know, hey, as long as I own this factory, I should be able to do whatever I want. And, and it just is what it is. Because again, I believe in property rights. And if your action is negatively impacting somebody else, then they have the, they have the right to sue for civil damages. Um, there was a really interesting case in New York once where a, a woman was putting her clothes out to dry and there was a nearby factory and it was throwing up so many pollutants that her clothes were getting dirty. She actually took him to court and won. Why? Because it was a trespass. They, they had to compensate her. Well, the moment they had to compensate one person, guess what? Everybody else now has, the, whoa, wait, you might have to compensate me too. So the business has a positive incentive to change the way that they do business in order to make sure that doesn't happen. Or what they do is they hire a lobbyist, they go to the government, and then they get a politician to write a bill saying, as long as you pollute under this amount, nobody can sue you. So again, this is, there is a delicate balance here. I'm not pretending it's all easy, but that's one of the ways that you, you can deal with it. It does both seem like when government gets involved, it gets a little bit. It gets a little iffy because government's allowed to do all kinds of things that individuals yeah. are not allowed to do. And we've got a lot of crazy spills and things like that that have happened because of government. Oh, when the EPA almost destroyed the Colorado River for like, I think it was the Colorado River. Yeah, they turned. No, it was a river in Colorado. OK, all right. That would have been a way bigger disaster yeah. if it was the Colorado River. They turned it yellow. Yeah. Um. So I, I mentioned earlier. Um, that there was one country in particular that decided to take Paul Ehrlich's uh, dire predictions at face value and actually implement a bunch of policies that he was advocating for. And that country is, drum roll please, the People's Republic of China. No. Um, the yeah, with the, the one-child policy. Who knew that a totalitarian dictatorship with uh, no individual freedom whatsoever could uh, tell people how many children they're allowed to have and that you would get so-called progressives in the West cheering that on as a is a good thing. That was, yeah. you know, it's the China situation is really interesting because the one-child policy didn't say that you could only have sons. However, basically, the one-child policy collided with tradition, yeah, in a way that caused a shortage of girls, and so now you have this huge abundance of men. You have more single Chinese men that physically have no chance because there, there literally are not enough women of ever becoming married in China than there is all the people living in Canada. However, women in China have more value now than they've ever had. <laughs> That's also led to the complete, in fact, actually, can, can Hamilton, could you pull up the um, population chart um, that... Uh, okay. She, which one are you looking for? Because we're going to talk about this one to set the because this is the current world population. This. Okay, this one. Could you search for China? Sure. Um, so, well, can we can we explain real quick what we're looking at? Yeah, yeah. So especially yeah, for the, the audio graphs. listeners. Okay, so there's this thing called a population pyramid. The way that it works is is that it it ranks everybody by age, right? So from like zero to a hundred plus, and then it's divided between male and female because people who create population pyramids believe that there's only two genders. Um, <laughs> and, uh, that, was, that was pretty good. <laughs> and what you can do is that you can look at that chart and you can, you can extrapolate a lot of data from that. So 
You uh, ready for me to pull it up? Yep, yep. Do you... Okay, cool. So here's China's pyramid. I'm going to, obviously, if you're watching the show, you can you can look along with me. For our audio listeners, I want to walk you guys through this. What you see here, in fact, I'm going to pull it up myself, actually, because it'll be easier for me to um, to look at it on my laptop. Um, well, can I, can I roll is, briefly? Hold on. Go is, ahead. This the Go one, ahead is this the one that has the disparity between the genders as well? No, I can show you that, though, Tina. Well, let, let's, let's do this real quick before we get into this so everyone actually, understands. Actually, it does, but you what, need to what is a healthy, What is a healthy... Um, you know, so there's basically three types of these population pyramids. There's what they call a stationary pyramid or a constant population pyramid. That's a pyramid can be described as stationary if the percentages of population, age and sex, remain approximately constant over time. In a stationary population, the numbers of births and deaths roughly balance one another. An expansive period... It's pretty obvious, right? That's where the population is said to be fast growing and the size of each birth cohort increases each year. So that's where you have a higher birth rate than you have a fatality rate um, or death rate. And then the constrictive pyramid or declining population is a population pyramid that is narrowed at the bottom. The population is generally older on average as the country has long life expectancy, a low death rate, but also a low birth rate. This may suggest that in future, there may be a high dependency ratio due to reducing numbers at working age. So the dependency ratio is, is that, um, Obviously, there's a high degree of dependency at the bottom of the uh, at the bottom and at the top. So when you're very very young, you're highly dependent. When you're very very old, you're highly dependent. It's those middle years where the, that's that's your workers, right? And so when you have a, like kind of an inverse pyramid, you have a high dependency rate at the, at the top, but you have a a reduced worker force. And then when you look at the bottom, when you have a low birth birth rate, what that essentially predicts is that that pyramid is going to get is going to get more and more inverse over time. And so it becomes very, very dangerous. That's also known as aging. So when you see an inverse pyramid, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that represents that the country is aging and that's a really bad thing for the country's demographics and for its economic future. So when you look at China, I've, I've got the, um, I've got the chart pulled up myself. Um, Tina, your question, and technically this does show the difference, but you kind of have to, to read it in order to see it. Um, there's, there's some other charts that will shade when there's an excess of females or males by yeah. age group. But um, in China, like, like here's, here's a stunning fact for you. There's twice as many 50 to 54 year olds in China as there are zero to five year olds. Wow. That is not a recipe for healthy economic growth in the future. China has built itself this is actually in the script for the Y Minute that we haven't recorded yet, so I'm, I'm giving you a sneak peek into the future of the Y Minutes right now. Uh, when I was doing my research for the um, Y Minute that we're about to record, um, I, was, I was looking at the economic and demographic history of China. And one thing that really stood out was that China had been able to build itself up from effectively being a feudal state yeah. barely a century ago to being a... a relatively middle income emerging economic power. There's still heavily undeveloped places in China, but, but there's also, there, there's parts of China that look like the West and there's parts of China that look like sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but China has been able to get to the point where it's at because of its large, young and growing population. 
that has given it first off a massive market for foreign investment because China is the large. Well, actually, China is no longer the largest market in the world because in April this year, China was surpassed by India to be the largest country in the world. So China is actually now the second largest market in the world. But for the longest time, China was the largest market in the world, which drew tons of international capital to flow into the country, even though it was a communist state that had not really free markets. It was a large market that people wanted to trade with. That was one advantage. It had a young and growing population, which gave it the ability for it to become the workhouse of the world. It became the manufacturing superpower of the world. This is something that a lot of people in the U.S. and the Rust Belt are very, very aware of. And then lastly, it became a military juggernaut because it could field a massive army. It, it was a force to be reckoned with. China hasn't fought any wars with anybody since it invaded um uh, Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s. But China has a, a military strength that is probably unrivaled by any other country in the region other than arguably India. And again, the reason why is because their large, growing, and relatively young population that they had for decades. All of those things are now, are now coming to a rapid end because the one-child policy got exactly what Paul Ehrlich said that it would give them. The CCP got what it wanted, which was a massive decline in the birth rate. And now they're realizing that that was actually a terrible mistake because they, they, they've set their country up for the largest population collapse of any country anywhere in the entire world in all of human history. And here's what I mean by this. If you look at this chart right here, this shows on the right for our audio listeners, this is a historical chart showing their population growth over time, the number of people living in China. And if you go back to the 1950s, you see that China had about 543 million people. It grew until 2021 when it peaked at about 1.425 billion. So 1 billion, 425 million people. China is now shrinking for the first time since the Great Leap Forward. Well, I think it's important to note, too. I don't know if everyone realizes this. China is no longer the most populated nation in the yeah, world. Yeah, I... I, I Nick, you're pulling a Hamilton. Oh, I'm right sorry. Now. <laughs> what? I said earlier, now I know that nobody listens to my monologues. Not even Nick listens to my monologues. Yeah, I said earlier that in April this year, China was surpassed by India to be the largest country in the world. That was yeah. news to me until yesterday. I thought that it was going to be at the end of this year or early yeah. next year that they would be surpassed. Happened in April. It's already happened. Yeah. Happened you, in my birthday. You mentioned <laughs> aging populations, and I think it's really interesting when you look at uh, countries like Japan, where over a quarter of the population is over 60. Oh, yeah. We're going to get to Japan in just a second. So so to, to, to wrap up China, because I, I want to show Japan because their their population yeah. pyramid is like completely inverse. What you, the, the, I, I'll, to wrap up with China, when you look at the projections, knowing where we're at right now with the fact that their birth rate is below replacement levels. And again, when you look at their population pyramid, I brought up before that there's twice as many 50 to 55 year olds as there are zero to five year olds in China. That's insane. And so the projections right now are showing that by the end of this century, China's going to have a population of about 766 million people. Hamilton, if you actually scroll your mouse down, you'll you'll see this chart as it declines on the right side. Hamilton, I see, I see. on the right side. You'll you'll see it 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 just keeps dropping throughout this entire century, and by the end of the century, they're gonna they're gonna dip below a billion people. Yeah. So from their peak two years ago to the end of the century, when we're all gonna be dead, or at least I'm probably you guys are definitely gonna be dead. I'm probably gonna be dead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't think I'm gonna live to be 106, unfortunately. But 
up until the end of the century, China's going to lose the equivalent of almost 700 million people. Yeah. In the equivalent of, of what you could argue is one lifetime, 80 years between 2020 and 2100 in one lifetime, China's going to lose half of its population, 700 million people. That's, that's if everything continues the so, way it currently is. So the CCP raised the one child policy yeah. in, I think 2016 to a two child policy. And then it got, and yeah. then in 2021, they, uh, they, they, uh, and then they raised it to a three child policy. And then in 2021, the same year that their population peaked, they eliminated all popula- all population controls altogether. There, you can have as many children as you want now in China with no government interference. And yeah. now there's talks of subsidizing having children because the CCP is realizing that their predecessors, the current generation of Communist Party leaders in China are now realizing their predecessors that were running the country in the 80s and 90s completely destroyed their country's demographic future. This collapse, losing 700 million people in one lifespan, is going to lead to the complete collapse of China standing on the global stage. The whole idea, the Chinese century, that they're going to overtake the U.S., it's a complete myth now. There's no way this is going to happen. Well, let, let's say, I want to say, I, I want to thank you to Isaac Gorsky. Um, he sent a super chat. He goes, just hoping, uh, hopping in to donate and say hi. I like listening to you guys while I'm trucking, so I save this for later. Thank you for what you do and say. And I thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for the super chat as well. And, and Scott said, Christian, you'll live longer if you stop being a doomer. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about this stuff in China is that so many of these studies with viruses and things like that and so many sicknesses and things like that are are basically brought into existence from China. Um and whether it's because they're creating it or because of, you know, they just have crazy bats or what the deal is. But when you look at this chart, it makes you kind of wonder if they're trying to lop off some of the excess weight from their upper aging region. And in case anyone from YouTube is watching, when we say China, we mean a mythical place in a fake book that we're talking about, not the actual China and the planet that we're currently occupying here comes the part where i admit that i wasn't paying attention because i was engaged in the chat i was telling them wait until you see the japanese chart so so to your point what's again people people just because i say some of these things doesn't mean i fully believe it but in some situations i think it's fairly probable and the fact that it's so probable is why i have to say this so here, here's the part where I think a lot of people in the West, because we most of us are using, used to living in a country which, comparatively speaking, historic, historically speaking, relatively free, right? And and there are limitations on on government power. Like we can't we can't imagine living in a in a state that the people in China do on a day to day basis, right? As frustrated as we are with things that go on in the United States, um, you know, we're nowhere near where they're at right now, and. What frustrates me about that is a lot of times when we're talking about some of these concerns and we're talking about some of these problems, a lot of people, and I will say my experience is predominantly on the left, will say, oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody wants to. <sighs> Stop telling me nobody wants to. All right, you're honestly telling me that over the last hundred years, we, we don't have sufficient examples of governments engaging in draconian, authoritarian, totalitarian policies in order to achieve something that they thought was for the greater good. We absolutely do. Like we absolutely do. So stop telling me this. Stop telling me that politicians wouldn't resort to engaging in some pretty nefarious acts if they genuinely and honestly believed it was for our own good. That some of the worst atrocities that you get in human history were not because someone was greedy. It was because someone thought they were saving the world. That's right. Right. And they picked an enemy 
or, or they, they believe that there was a genuine enemy and they resorted to something pretty significant in order to try to mitigate that threat. Yep. And when we're talking about this, you don't get to tell me that the same people that are all saying now that we got to eat bugs and that, you know, we, we, we need to engage in all these, you know, various policies, whether it be with health policies, whether it be with food policies, whether it be with population control policies, you don't get to tell me that I don't get to be concerned about where some of those policies might lead. When China implemented the one child policy, it did so to the resounding applause and approval of many within the academic communities within the United States. And now when we look back at the problems that this is all going to cause them to the point where China is now not only saying, hey, you can only have one kid, actually you can have two, actually you can have three, actually have as many as you want, actually we'll pay you to have kids, right? I'm sorry, I get to look at that and be like, yep, this is what happens when you try to centrally plan these policies. And this is why I'm so skeptical when it comes to environmental policy or population policy. I'm so skeptical of these centralized authorities deciding we know what the problem is and we're the only ones with the courage, the strength and the resources to make sure that it's adequately dealt with. And so we're going to do X. Yeah. And if you don't agree with us, then you're part of the problem. Yeah. China is a perfect example of this because you know, the, they didn't just suddenly go, I'm going to start having boys instead of girls. What did they do to all the girls? They either aborted them or they killed them after birth. This was a gender genocide. And it's, it's like, we're looking at these numbers being completely skewed. It's not like you can wire your body to only have a certain gender baby. Well, not according to Henry the eighth. And so, so the issue is, is that they spurred on a sort of Self-genocide. Yeah. So let's look at, uh, we're looking at Japan now. Here's the problem. It's not just authoritarian regimes where population no. is collapsing. So no. this is only half of the equation. China, you could make the argument that China's coming population collapse is because of Largely government measures. imposed, yeah. Very strong, strong evidence to show that. But Japan had no such thing. Japan is, is uh, I'm going to use the word democracy in a positive sense for once. Japan is a democracy. <laughs> which actually might be a problem, but it's a different type of problem than being an authoritarian communist regime. Um, Japan has actually a bigger problem than even China. Japan's actually further along the curve than China. China will catch up to Japan in terms of their, their population pyramid being completely inverted right now. It's, it's only like halfway inverted. One of the interesting uh, indicators that I, I just, it kind of blew my mind is the fact that Japan already exceeded. They, uh, a quarter of their population is over over 65. And so um, in the when you look at the numbers for diaper sales, adult diapers have exceeded baby diapers in, in sales. So to give you an idea of just how bad things are in Japan in terms of their aging population, I mean, Japan is like one of the oldest countries in the world. There's twice as many 70-year-olds in Japan as there are five-year-olds. Two 70-year-olds for every five-year-old. So imagine imagine what your social security system will look like. Imagine what your welfare system will look like. Imagine your pension system. All of those things that require young workers in the workforce that are paying into the programs that older people that are retired are drawing from. Yeah. Right? Imagine how all of those programs are going to operate when in 20 years from now, there's 
two 80-year-olds for every 20-year-old that's working. You get Soylent Green. The old people <laughs> go to a room. They get they they die, and then they get turned into these little cracker things that they feed to the children. All right. You, I think you, Tina wait, well, needs the Alex Jones <laughs> tinfoil oh, hat. No, 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 no. This is another this is recommendation. Yeah, movie, let us Soylent know if, we, if, if, if Tina needs the, the tinfoil tin hat. <laughs> no, you guys. Okay. I'm probably talking to people that don't remember this movie because I think I was a little kid when it came out. Soylent Green. Anyway. Nice predictor for what's probably going to happen in some of these places with such an upside down. Well, no. So actually I I think here's what's interesting. That would probably, that will probably be true in some places. An interesting component of democratic societies though, if, if they remain so is that when you have two 80 year olds and one 20 year old, the 80 year olds win all the votes. And so the 80-year-olds are the ones controlling who actually runs the government, who actually distributes the resources. And that's the part where you get a, you get a, a democratic crisis where the 20-year-olds, the 30-year-olds who see no future for themselves and who now feel like they are, they are constantly working for the people that set them up for this democrat, demographic crisis finally revolt and say, no. I would not be surprised if in 40 to 50 years, at long time, but like within two generations or so. So, so maybe under 50 years, but I would not be surprised if maybe within like 20 to 40 years, you see a rise in political radicalism in Japan as the younger generations are feeling crushed under the burden of having to support twice as many people that are in their seventies and eighties and, and being outvoted in elections where the 70 and 80 year olds are refusing to to raise the retirement age or refusing to draw down some of these benefits that are draining the, the, the savings and, and, and labor of, again, the 20 and 30 something year olds well, that are actually working and supporting these people. Cause the other important thing to understand about dependency ratios, right? Cause when we talk about dependency, again, the bottom, the very bottom of the period pyramid is dependent. The very top of the pyramid is dependent. The difference is, is that I would argue the dependency ratio on top can, can be fairly more significant than the dependency ratio at the bottom, right? Like the, the 80 year old is still consuming more. Now, presumably they might've built up retirement and the whole deal. And that's, that's not so much a problem, right? If, if they have productive means of taking care of themselves in their, in their old age, that's one thing. Yeah. But if you've got a Ponzi scheme, well, but if they don't, right, if they're completely dependent upon government subsidy, that is a far bigger problem than the person at the bottom of the pyramid, because they're being, they're being raised by parents. Plus they're going to be entering, presumably they're going to be entering the workforce. So that's why and when you're subsisting off of government and there are way too many of you up there at the top, no longer producing subsisting off of government, it's a perverse incentive for that government to eliminate you. So you're I, not I, wrong. I want to read off a few things from this population pyramid for our audio listeners just yeah. to get across. I mean, j- just how crazy it is. So I said before that there's twice as many 70 year olds as there are five year olds. I mean, there's also twice as many 50-year-olds as there are five-year-olds. There's twice as many 45-year-olds as there are five-year-olds. The number of five-year-olds in Japan represent less than 2% of the population. When you when you look at anybody under the age of 20, you're two, four, six, seven, less than 10% of the entire Japanese population is under the age of 20. So, that's in, that that's incredible. Just to hammer this point home too and what this means for Japan. They hit their height in population I think around 2015. Can you can you scroll over there Hamilton? It was it was 2016 when they peaked. Or 20, so, sorry, sorry, it was 2010 actually when they peaked. Okay. So 123 million roughly. They peaked at 128 million. Okay. 
128 million now go all the way down to what the project, if things remain the same, their projected population in 2100 is 73 million. That's so that, that almost cut in half, almost cut in half, half the population. Now, again, there's going to be a lot of people look at that and say, good, right? Good. That's what we want. We're going to get to later on whether or not that actually is good, right? Okay, fine. Because we're talking about all this like, oh my gosh, this is, this is insane. This is nuts. And there's so many people watching, you know, from, from various perspectives, from the left-wing perspective or from the environmental perspective, that's like, what do you mean? Oh no, this is good. We've got the same amount of resources and half the people. What's the problem? Let's go to, let's look at, um, let's kind of flip the script here. Uh, let's look at. Oh yeah, Thanos is Thanos is looking at Japan as like that's the model. For yeah, this. right. <laughs> yeah. Thanos is watching anime right now, going yeah. <laughs> All right, let's go to. Whoops, I just threw that off. All right, let's go to um, Niger, which I believe is the fastest growing country in the world right now. Yeah, or they have the highest birth rate. Not Nigeria. So oh. yeah, Niger. you you want to talk about the difference between a growth pyramid? Um, <laughs> that is a okay. pyramid for exponential growth. For the people growth. listening, can you please describe this? Yes. So it looks like the Empire State Building. Yeah. So the number of people, um, we'll say we'll start with sixty and over, represents 08 percent of the population. The number of people um, under under ten represents about twenty percent of the population. I've so got a remember when about I said? This. Remember when I said that? There's less than 10% of the Japanese population are under the age of 20. Yeah. 10% of Niger's population is under the age of five. Yeah. 10% in just the zero to five year range. Yeah. A majority. So, so like what you end up getting is a situation where it's like a majority of their, a majority of their country's population is like under the age of 30. I have a question. Yeah. So does this mean that their birth rate has exploded or does it mean that their people are dying young? Which one? Let, let me, okay. Let me, yeah. So let's, let's look at it this way. The replacement birth rate is 2.1 children per woman, right? Now, obviously nobody has 2.1. In Niger, right? that replacement rate's almost certainly a lot higher. It's 6.7. No, 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 no. That's the birth rate. That's not the replacement rate. Oh, sorry, rate. sorry, sorry. So, yeah. so the replacement Repla rate is. Yeah, you're right. Replacement rate is 2.1. Yeah. Well, the thing is the replacement rate varies over time. This gets into, I was having a lot of these chat conversations with Brian in the chat and, and he was like, do you guys know what carrying capacity is? And I was yeah. like, yes, I know what carrying capacity is. And he was like, well, we've already gone over it. And I'm like, no, if we've already gone over it, Paul Ehrlich would have been right. We yeah. would be in a Malthusian catastrophe if we'd gone over it. What, but what by, by the are, way, so the audience knows what carrying capacity is when you look at a population versus the resources that is supporting that population. There has to be sufficient resources to support the population. Otherwise, the population stagnates and then declines until it reaches equilibrium. That's kind of a basic yeah, understanding. Yeah, so like carrying the capacity. carrying capacity of rock all, which is literally a piece of rock sticking out of the Atlantic Ocean <laughs> off the coast zero. of Ireland, is zero. Yeah. Um, the carrying capacity of the United States is at least 300 million people because yeah. we're, we're, but the point that I was trying to make to Brian, doesn't, hold on, doesn't replacement, um, like the replacement level vary based yes, on the dangers of the environment was, that, or, yeah. that's or wherever you are. To. So the, the, the carrying capacity varies. This gets into the whole human beings are a resource because the, I guarantee you when we were using 200, when the Ptolemies were ruling Egypt, we were, we, Egypt probably had a lot lower carrying capacity than today because the agricultural practices of 200 BC 
were a lot more inefficient than the agricultural practices of 2023. Carrying capacity can increase over time. This is something that the Malthusians get incorrect all the time. They think carrying capacity is a static number. And if you get over that, you're going to end up in a Malthusian catastrophe. The population is going to collapse to zero and civilization will end and we'll be eating, you know, rats on sticks. Like, no, that... Carrying capacity can increase as technological growth increases over time. And guess what? Technological growth has been connected to population growth. So as the population increases, the carrying capacity has also increased. It's not a fixed thing. And this also gets into the replacement rate. So in 200 BC, I'm going to use the same example. In Ptolemaic Egypt, the the replacement rate was probably a lot higher than 2.1 children because infant mortality was through the roof. Half of all children 2000 years ago died in infancy. They, they wouldn't even name children until after your second or first birthday, because there was a, there was a 50% chance you weren't going to make it. So the, the replacement level was way higher than 2.1. 2.1 is the replacement level with 21st century American style access to healthcare. Very expensive, but the U.S. has the the U.S. has a very expensive healthcare healthcare system. But we have everything. You need something, we've got it. It might cost a lot, but you've got it. So two point one is what you have with twenty first century style healthcare. Two hundred BC, the replacement level was probably like three children, or maybe even more than three children because of of infant mortality. So in a country like Niger, their replacement level is probably higher than 2.1, but their fertility level is like over six. Six point seven. And Tina asked about, okay, so is this just a really high number of births, but also a lot of deaths? So is the population not growing? It actually is. This goes into, if you look at the chart on the right, so for our audio listeners, the the population pyramid is a true pyramid, right? I mean, it's like over half the population is like under the age of 20 in, in, in Niger. But when you look on the left of this chart, you can see their population over time. And Hamilton, if you scroll along it, you see that around the time that Niger got their independence, I believe that Niger got their independence in uh, 1960, along with most of West Africa. Mm-hmm. It was in it was in, either in the 50s or 60s. But since independence, Niger has gone from having about 3 million people, 3.5 million people in 1960 to over 27 million people today. So wow. like doubling and then doubling again. But, and then but doubling isn't again. that just because their people aren't dying so young? Well, there, a lot of them so, are dying. Yeah, because so, but, are, well, the question is, are they having 10 babies now versus six babies before, or are those six babies just surviving? So it's, it's a, I, I, I think probably I, I the mean, the birth I rate's actually dropping. It's dropping everywhere in the world. Yeah. And we're going to get. So it, it was 6.7. Okay. It was 6.7 in 2023. It was 6.82 in 2021. All right. So like we could, we could go down and we can like, I don't have the data right yeah. in front of me to answer so, your question. But my, I guess my point to drill down on this is less people are dying, not necessarily less people. Like, even if they're having less babies, more people are surviving yes. Yes. Um, into adulthood. And yes. so- And it helps that they still have a massive fertility rate, even yeah. if it is much, the fertility rate in Niger is much lower than it was in 1960, much lower than 1960. But you also have to keep in mind that some of these countries don't count babies before a certain age either because their infant mortality is very high and they don't count it 
into the population like like they should. People, so people some definitely countries fudge. are cooking the books a yeah. little bit on their infant mortality rates. Yeah, but okay, but the general point that I wanted to make here, right? The general point I wanted to make is that if you look at the fertility rates, they're all much higher, like in Africa. Like the highest fertility rates with the highest is, is Niger at 6.7, Chad 6.1, Democratic Republic of Congo 6.1. Um, like pretty much everywhere in Africa, you, you've got over... I think it's over three with, with a couple of exceptions. The whole continent is growing. Yeah. The the whole continent's growing. Um, And then when you look at, okay, so the general population replacement is, is usually at 2.1. That's, uh, we understand this is not perfect. There's there's other factors that go into it, but 2.1 is generally what people use as the replacement number uh, when, when we're realizing this. There is nowhere in Europe, um, or I believe, nowhere, nowhere in Europe, nowhere in North America, um, and I don't believe anywhere in South America. The entire world other than Africa. Like Peru. Peru has 2.1. But other than that, Dominican Republic so is Peru 2.2. is is treading water if they're yeah, at 2.1. and, and Dominican Republic is at two point two. I'm looking here real quick. Honduras is at two point three. Nicaragua. So actually, Central America is is still in the two point threes. So no, actually, there are some South American countries that are at two point four. Paraguay and whatnot, but North America, Europe. So with the and, exception and, of a little bit of Central and Latin America. Yeah. And, and the entire African continent, the entire world has below replacement levels. A- Asia is the one that is just really. It's collapsed. The, yeah. The, uh, the worst is um, of like a, a, let me see here. I'm looking at the numbers. South Korea has the lowest birth rate in the entire world. Technically. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong actually now has the, the lowest. The I don't count them. them though because they're. Yeah, I know. They're, but yeah, South Korea is 0.9. So, so they don't even have, so they, they're not even average one child per. So basically per, what we're saying is for all the people who are terrified and pearl clutching overpopulation, um, overpopulation, don't worry, the problem solving itself. Well, I, because what we're looking at now is population decline, a I, natural but population But we were making decline. the argument earlier, Tina, that it wasn't a problem. As more people were being born, more people were working on problems. Again, I, here's the biggest difference. It's the the environmentalist element of the left views human beings as a net negative. Ultimately, that's what they do. They, they they view human beings as a bad thing. More people equals bad stuff. They and and as liberty loving conservatives, we view more people as a positive thing. And by the way, most world religions view more people as a positive thing. Islam, Christianity, Judaism, even Buddhism and Hinduism view more people as a good thing. It's, it's the environmental left that views people as a bad thing, as a mouth to feed. You know what they're, they're doing? They're, they're, they, they have a feudalistic, pre, pre-capitalistic view of human beings, that they're, that they're just a drain on resources. They're another mouth to feed. We view human beings as wonderfully and beautifully created that have talents that they can share with the entire world and that more of them working on the problems that we have equals more opportunities for solutions. And we just saw a graph 10 minutes ago that showed that at the same time that the number of people in the world doubled and then doubled again and then doubled again, the number of people living in abject poverty collapsed lower in raw numbers than it was even in 1800 when 90% of the world was living in absolute poverty. The point is, is that guess what? It's a good thing that Africa is growing and it's a bad thing that the entire rest of the world is shrinking right now. 
We want more people because guess what? When you go to places where population is where, where the population's declining, you see diminishing economic opportunities. Go to go to Miami. Go to Florida, one of the fastest growing states in the country right now. Go to Tennessee. Go to Texas. Take a look at the economic opportunities that those states have to offer. Go to South Florida and then go to Detroit. Yeah. And then ask yourself which city you would rather live in. Although we do have somebody in the chat that keeps getting mad that we keep dumping on Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, well, and and to this other point, the, the current replace the current fertility rate for like the world average is actually 2.3. So what, what it is, is it's, it's not like population. Now, again, it, it it's the trend is, is that we're going to hit that below replacement rate on, on a global level. But right now we haven't quite hit it just yet. What we are seeing is that certain countries, again, China being preeminent, China, Japan, South Korea are all perfect examples of drastically declining birth rates that are probably going to lead to to massive drops in population. You're seeing this trend. But here's the question is, um, it's not whether or not the whole world population collapses. What we are going to see most likely is individual countries like certain cultures totally becoming erased, going extinct. Well, it, it, what'll be interesting to watch is how those countries um, attempt to deal with the problem through things like immigration. So for, for instance, J- Japan- Right, right. But some of these countries, especially like Japan, they do not like any mixing in the b- bloodstream. They, <laughs> I, they are, I'm telling you, I when I worked in Hawaii, um, there- there was definitely, it was very, let me just put it this way. It was very frowned upon to marry outside of, if you were Japanese, very frowned upon to marry outside of Japanese. You you were basically disgracing your family if you did that. And so there is a huge problem, like I said, with, with China, when tradition and culture collides with government policy and things like that. Well, in this situation, you've got the tradition of of not letting anybody else mix into your your family line, um, you, you end up, I mean, you give yourself no choices. No, there's there, well, And this is, this is why the population growth that we see in a lot of like the United States, Europe and whatnot is, is fueled by immigration. It's not fueled by fertility rates. And, right. and Japan has a very, very strict immigration policy. It is very, very difficult to immigrate to Japan to actually become a citizen. Um, they're going to have to make some really tough decisions on that. And, and again, part of this is, you know, Japan would argue that they're, they're fighting to protect, uh, you know, Japanese culture and, and okay, I get all that, but they're, they're running in a population collapse. They're, they're not going to have, they're not going to have a, a sufficient labor force to prop up their current economy and the expectations within the system as it currently exists. You're basically going to have to outsource population and, and then you lose something in doing that. Like here, well, well, here in the U S that's why Japan will never, Japan will never loosen ever. They will never loosen their immigration laws. It, the, the thing is, is that like in, in the U S I feel like a lot of us are very, very used to um, a lot of variation with, with uh, oh, yeah. having mean, children and, yeah. and, and interracial marriages and things like that are super common here. So much so to the point where, um, it's foreign to us to look at certain nations that still view it as yeah. a really bad thing. And, um, I mean, my point is, is that, you know, people should mix up as much as possible. It's better for, it's better for DNA. 
Japan, the Japanese political leaders would argue the exact opposite. They like being a homogeneous society. They, yeah. they, they're, they're not a multicultural society. And, and I mean, I, I, I get it to some point. You, you can argue well, you're that- you're talking about society. I'm talking about genetics. Okay. Genetics but, get better the more it gets mixed up with other- other it's not like the Japanese people are all inbred though. Like, I mean, the, 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 the point is, is that in Japan, they do not think that Americans and Europeans and Africans and South Americans are Japanese. And, well, it's, and, it's no, even, it's I'd even, love for them to it's visit. Even, but, it's even other Asians, right? Like there, there's, so look, we're kind of getting off on a tangent here. Like we, we, we get all of that. Different countries are going to have to find different ways in order to combat this problem at the same time that they, they maintain certain cultural institutions or they maintain certain cultural norms, right? They're, so different people look at those issues differently. Different countries look at those different issues. And to Tina's point, they're going to come head to head with like, okay, you, you've got one of two options. You're going to have to actually either drastically change the way you the services that you provide, the systems that you've put in place, or you're going to have to allow for more immigration, at least in the interim, because you're you're not going to be able to birth your way out of this right away. It's going to take a little bit of time. You will have a dip that you are going to have to contend with. There will be a gap. Right. Even, and if you end up with that you, dip where you you run the risk of getting taken over by another country when you're in the midst of that dip, you're not going to breed your way out of it basically before some other country comes and just takes you over. Well, I mean, if you're, if your population declines that much, other people are just coming. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's move on to the next, cause we got some more stuff to go through today. Um, so again, we, we've kind of already discussed this, that when we look at the overall um, next one, next one. Okay. Um, so there was, there was a report by life science that said if current trends hold the world's population, which is currently 7.96 billion. It's a little, this is a little bit dated. will reach an all time high of 8.6 billion in the middle of the century before falling by almost 2 billion after the century's end. In the second scenario called the giant leap, researchers estimate the population pizza, 8.5 billion people around 2040 and declines to around 6 billion people by the end of the century. Um, so more and more studies are coming out and they're, they're noticing again, not just what's happened in China, Japan, South Korea, uh, Europe, North America. They're, they're also looking at even, even places like Africa that still have incredibly high fertility rates are lower than they were five years ago, 10 years ago. So to, to Christian's point, you, you mitigate some of this with increased access to food, increased access to modern medicine. And so you, you increase your life expectancy, but if you don't have a good replacement rate, right, if you don't have a good fertility rate, then, then ultimately you're, you're still having an aging population instead of keeping that the, the pyramid where it would be healthy. Um, and so now more and more people are starting to come to the conclusion, more and more studies are starting to come to the conclusion that, again, if trends continue, and this is a really important thing to mention, trends can change, right? Trends can change. However, there are, there are certain things that you're still going to feel that you're still going to feel the pain of it, right? You can change the trend tomorrow, but that doesn't automatically increase the number of 20 year olds you have, right? You can increase the number of five year olds you have. You're not increasing the number of 20 year olds you're having right now, or you, me, you can increase the number of births next year. You can do that all day long. Everyone can go out and you know, everyone can get pregnant and boom, you've drastically increased your, your birth rate. There's still going to be a gap. There's still going to be a gap between when those 20 year olds become 40 and when, you know, the, the newborns are, are reaching into that work age. So you, you're not going to be able to avoid that. And the question is what happens in that period of time and, and what happens right now to mitigate the, you know, 
the currently oncoming demographic It's also in, an interesting factor to think in how many kids are being chemically castrated right now in some of these Western countries uh, with the gender ideology going on. And and the, the idea that you're, I wonder, it's just a question, if birth rates will be affected at all from these type of policies where, you know, we basically make it, make people unable to reproduce. Well, this, this is the, this is the question, right? Is why is this happening? Cause the, the, the idea is, is that, well, if you have an impoverished nation or it's too expensive to have kids, right? You hear that a lot. Well, it's too expensive to have kids. All right. Well, the poorest countries in the world are having kids at, you know, huge rates. It's the wealthiest countries in the world that are not having the kids at the same rates. And so it's important to understand that there is a, I think there is a major cultural component to this and you can't just chalk it up to, you know, Western culture, because this is happening most in most extreme sense in China, South Korea, Japan. Um, Nobody's having kids anywhere other than Africa and parts of Latin America. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. So, so there's, I, I was I, only talking about Western culture with the gender ideology. Well, no, I get that, but I'm, yeah. well, that's my point is my point is, is that I think different things explain this in different ways. I, I do think some of it can be explained by what, what we might call. So in, I think environmental, like environmental concern, when, when you have young people out there, you know, saying don't have any kids, save the planet, yeah. right? That, that is the a whole climate catastrophe thing has led to a sense of, of panic among people that are younger than me. Like anybody under, under like 25 or under 20 and the West has just their whole life. It's just been beat into their heads that the world is on fire and you're responsible for it and nothing can be done to stop it. And when you have that type of message, you end up getting so many people that are zoomers that are saying like, who would possibly bring a child into this world right now? Yeah. In fact, I, I want to read off a couple things from um, some of our friends in our uh, community chat that I, I actually wrote about this um, a few days ago. And I, I asked like, I don't think anybody in the world is ready for the fact that virtually every nation outside of Africa now either has stagnant or declining birth rates. The only population growth that the Western world is witnessing can entirely be chalked up to immigration. We've talked about that before. And we've talked about China. We've talked about Japan. I mentioned South Korea in this post of mine as well. I, I, I brought up that South Korea is on track for a 45% decline from its peak. And then I mentioned how Europe is no better. In Italy, for example, there's twice as many 60-year-olds as there are five-year-olds. Portugal is expected to shrink by 30%. Germany is expected to have a third of its population be over the age of 60 by 2050. The UK's fertility rate is now below re replacement levels. France, which for the longest time, because the French government, most French thing ever, the French government concluded the worst possible thing that could happen to the world is if there are no French people. <laughs> and so... They heavily subsidized having children yeah. and, and with the way the French welfare state is, you know, they, they just, they throw money at everything. Right. And they threw money at having children and France for the longest time had a positive fertility rate. Now they've joined the UK and having a negative fertility rate as well. So at, uh, virtually every country in Europe, unless they import migrants, their populations are going to shrink. And this has led to huge, pol huge political divides. You see it yeah. in Germany and France and Italy right now where the emergence of these right-wing populist movements that are pushing back against the immigration because they're arguing multiculturalism doesn't work. And the counter argument is, is that their economies will collapse without immigration. And so it's from their perspective, it's a lose-lose situation. So anyway, I, I write this stuff and then a couple of the people actually, I think gave some potential answers for why the entire world other than Africa and parts of Latin America are facing this. Shannon wrote, 
My answer is very simplistic. Stop teaching our children to hate themselves, everyone else, and that mere human existence is not only evil, or is, um, is not only evil and that we deserve to die out. These children and ourselves have been nonstop bombarded with the message that we are the only global problem. For example, I took my youngest to the zoo, trying to make sure that we stopped to learn about each animal. And then she said, why would I even want to learn about these animals when they're all going to die anyway? And then broke out into tears about it being all of her fault. And then basically Shannon is writing this and and she explains that like, you know, I I don't want to sugarcoat it or hide the truth, but teaching these topics at the appropriate age is critical. She's basically saying that we've indoctrinated our kids from kindergarten into viewing. Remember when I said earlier that human being consciousness is precious and that human beings are precious. We're teaching children the exact opposite that human beings are worthless and well, that well, they're I, I, causing a positive impediment yeah. all the problems to the world. And we're turning, we are turning them into nihilists. And Jayham said something similar. He said, with everything that you just laid out, Christian, I can't help but wonder if this is primarily caused by the constant drumbeat of the overpopulation message, along with the climate change narrative. They drove those two so much for so long and it finally bore fruit. And so many of the younger generations are opting out of marriage, let alone procreation. The best countercultural thing to do is find a piece of land, get married, cultivate the land in a marriage, and build legacies. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of, um, in the chat, Brian made a really good point. Um, he mentioned that, you know, in some areas, kids are viewed as being an asset, and some areas they are viewed as being a burden. And I'm just summing it up. I didn't say it exactly how he said it. But then he expanded on it and said, if you run a farm and children help you, uh, or sorry, and children help you um, have more. Oh, okay. And and children help you have more uh, because they work as an asset. If you yeah. live in the city and your child doesn't work, children are an expense and you have less children. And I, I would submit to you, uh, I think that was a really good point. It makes sense. And it's one of the reasons why uh, rural versus city, there is such a massive divide and how rural people operate, how they see the world, and how city people operate and how they see the world. And to the point where you may as well live in a different country. Um, you know, when folks in the city are, it, it is kind of crazy. You've got folks in the city that are screaming about climate change. You got people in the rural areas that are like, my climate's great. You're the <laughs> one ruining your own climate up where you are. You know, this these in these tight areas where you can't breathe fresh air. Um, and I think that it, it, that is a really good point. I, I probably said a few things that you may not agree with when I, when I expanded on it, but I do think that the divide runs very, very deep, um, beyond just how we see our children. Well, even. I, I would also say that I think one of the things influencing that cultural determination with respect to children is I, I think the city and the rural component is interesting, although you can still find an area where you know, kids would contribute or, or whatnot. But the idea used to be too, is like you took care of your kids when they were young and they helped take care of you when you were old. And that's gone now. That's the government's job. Well, and, right? and oh. lessons for children were also life skills. So you yeah. had your kids working at a capacity of what they could carry. So yeah. basically you don't have them carry heavy things, but you can have them carry their own weight to some degree. And little by little, you increase it so that they know how to carry their weight as an adult, whether it be how to farm, how to do whatever you're teaching your kids life skills that they will need for the rest of their lives. Well, in some areas, that's not something people do. No, it, it, it well, And I think, I, I also think there's a big difference to um, it kind of, 
typically, and this isn't universal, but across the board, religious people tend to have a very different view with respect to children too than um, a a lot of, not all, but a lot of more of like your secular atheists. Um, I think there's also been a a huge cultural push um, to to push women into the workforce. Now, some of that you can look at and you can say, look, if this is just about making sure that women have, you know, equal access and no legal prohibitions to be able to go in and find it. I, I don't oppose that. I have no problem with that. By the same token, it, it needs to be it needs to be recognized and understood that I do believe a lot of women have been fed a narrative about what their careers would mean to them versus what having children would mean to them. And I don't look at women as some sort of monolithic institution where they all think the same way or want the same things. But I do think we can point to some trends that a lot of women that go into the the workforce, once they get into their late twenties, early thirties, the, the emphasis to have children becomes more significant. The, the problem is, is that once you get to a certain age, fertility is a, is a diminishing asset, right? It fertility goes down over time. That's not me being mean. That's me pointing out an obvious fact. And, and I think there's been a lot of cultural push to go out and do these, all, all these other things. And then you can have kids later. Oh, okay. I, I you, you can do what you want. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you what to do, but that's exactly it. I don't think they've been taught that it's a trade-off. I think they've been taught that that's just something that you can put off arbitrarily and there's no consequences to that. Yeah. Now, it may be that you're you're willing to accept those consequences. It may be that you don't want to have kids. Again, I'm not telling you what to do, but I do think we I do think women were on some level lied to about how basic biology works. Absolutely. You can look at chicken Okay, I'm going to divert us just for a second. You could look at chicken eggs. I have hatched many, many, many of my own, my own chicken eggs. I've even ordered chicken eggs from other people like on eBay and they ship them to me. And the older the eggs are, like you can hatch them, you can go ahead and hatch them, but the longer you take to go ahead and hatch them and the longer they've been cold and different things affect your hatch rate. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's, it's like you've got old eggs your hatch rate's low. So, so I, I collect 11 air or 12 eggs and my hatch rate is maybe four because the eggs were kind of old. Hey, I got some, but they were old and they were kind of weaker. They were weaker chicks. And I know that sounds like terrible to say, but women are born that women, when they are in their mother's womb, have all the eggs they will ever have um, when, in their lifetime, the, the eggs are, a, are a limited, um, they're limited in quantity and they are, they're present and they are aging from the time you get them and older eggs equals a lower hatch rate in chickens. And, and I believe it also <laughs> applies to women. Well, I, I think we, we understand based, I mean, this is, this is not a question of biology. I wasn't there's trying a, to be crude about it. No, just, but there, there's a reason, there's a reason why when you look at industries associated with fertility, they've gone up exponentially within the, the West and within other countries where people put off having children into their, you know, thirties and sometimes even their forties and, and beyond. Uh, and again, I, I, this is, this is not me being condemning or anything else. It's just, 
I think we have done people a disservice by lying to them about the realities of their decisions and the consequences of their decisions. And so you get to a certain point and you're like, wait a second, this isn't fair. And it's like, it's not a question of fair. It's a question of reality. And you were lied to about what this means. And to point out that you were lied to makes you a bigot. Yes. It makes me a mean sexist. All right. I want to, I want to get this from uh, Ollie, Ollie 86. Thank you very much for the uh, super chat. He goes, it's funny. My sociology professor at my uh, nondescript college preaches the damage of globalization. It sounds to me the transfer of cultural knowledge is kind of nice. Love you, Ron Swanson. Thanks. There, no. was, there was a super chat earlier um, asking also, uh, uh, and, I, and I can't find it now, but it, it went by the wayside a little bit, but you're going to need to come back and answer it at the end. Okay. So to answer this one from Ollie, um, yeah, this, this, is a, this is a big issue. And, and a lot of conservatives too kind of look at this as a problem. Like, is globalization the problem? Is multiculturalism the problem? I, I think globalization in the sense of being able to effectively communicate, being able to effectively trade, being able to you know, voluntarily engage in, in commerce and exchange of ideas, I, I actually think that's a very, very positive thing. Or, or let's, let me put it this way. It, it's like anything else. It has the potential to be positive. It has the potential to be negative. I believe that, that the effects... Um, can and should be positive. Um, but it, it's not necessarily like this is so many things when we hear people talk about like, well, this is on net a good thing. And, and all that means is that we're acknowledging the bad things can come with it and good things that can come with it. I don't, I'll put it this way. I don't think the reverse, which would be isolation would, would necessarily be, I don't think it would be preferable. Um, I really think it comes down to like anything else. When you have a tool, the tool is usually morally neutral. The question is, is what do you use it for? Do you use it for positive ends? Do you use it for negative ends? And different people make different decisions on that. But I do think on the whole, fostering greater communication among people is, is a good idea. Fostering greater trade among people is generally a good idea. Um, so I, I, do, I do think it's interesting that, you know, again, some of the same people that will. Now, I will say this when it gets to multiculturalism, I want to make one distinction here. Um, I, I think the, one of the reasons why we have the whole concept of the nation state was the idea that there was something of certain cultural aspects that were dominant within all of society. And the reason why I think that is important is because it provides something for everyone to unify around. So we can have our differences, we can have our preferences for various things, but there needs to be certain core fundamentals within a society that people tend to agree on. Otherwise, you're constantly breaking out into war and conflict and division. And and so, again, doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but there should be certain core fundamentals. And so this idea that multiple cultures with, with diametrically opposed views for how to run a society can peacefully coexist, I, I think that's somewhat absurd. And so I think it's important to make certain distinctions on, on, on how we look at all that. All right, listen, we need to jump into the third part of this. And that is talking about, again, addressing this question. Is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? So when we look at, okay, if we were, let's say trends continue, and I'm not predicting that trends will continue to such a degree where now all of a sudden, um, you know, we're, we're at like half the global population. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but if it did, or if we had significant, let's say two or 3 billion people, you know, gone uh, by 2100, does this actually mean a good thing for the economy, a good thing for the environment? And, and let me make, let me make the argument that they will make real quick and, and you respond. 
the argument would be like, well, if we have fewer people, but we have the same amount of resources that the planet has, well, that means a higher degree, a higher share of resources for a smaller degree of people, right? Surely that's a good thing. And it also means less pollution, right? Because we have fewer people that are using fossil fuels or throwing single use plastics into their rivers to make it down to the ocean. So clearly all of these things would have positive impacts for the globe, for the environment, and for the, the, a distribution of economic resources. How could you possibly argue with that, Christian? Who's going to be working those resources? Oh, oh crap. We forgot about that, didn't we? Where do those resources, who's going to be coming up with the new technological, by the way, by 2100, we're probably going to be coming up with new and efficient ways to produce energy. For example, I think it was this year they came out that, that they briefly managed to get a nuclear fusion uh, reactor to actually produce more than it was, you know, to output more than it was taking in, which by the, for, for, for those who don't know that that is the same process the sun uses to, to produce its energy. So if we ever get to a point where there's a commercially viable, I mean, and the reason that it's so difficult is because, I mean, imagine the sun in a, in a room somewhere. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's going to melt a lot of stuff, right? That produces a lot of heat. So, um, you know, it, it, there, there's a huge hurdles to it. We've, we've spent a lot of money over, over a, long, a long amount of time to try to produce this, but it's looking like it might be possible. So if we get to a point where, where nuclear fusion, not fission, which yeah. is what a nuclear reactor does, but actually fusing elements together, if we ever get to a point where where that becomes commercially viable, I mean, at that point, the the stars are ours. Like, yeah. I mean, that that's the same technology again that 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 lights up the universe. So yeah. you're talking about safe, clean energy, effectively for like unlimited, cheap, like as cheap as you could imagine. Yeah, I mean, it, it, for for under our current models, for trillions of years, right? And so, and it might even be longer than that. It depends on, you know, we, we, it, there's there's a huge debate over over, you know, the long-term future of the universe. But that's a whole nother discussion for another day. The point is, is that it would be a, a nigh unlimited energy for, for extremely cheap, right? So, and it, even if that's not viable, there's other things like there's, um, uh, there's uh, um, things called thorium reactors that, that actually recycle a lot of the um, the the nuclear waste that that is mm -hmm. produced. It's funny, and Brian Betts literally just said that right reactors. as you said it. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, like there there's there's new technologies that will be coming out that will make energy more clean, more efficient, and more readily available in the future. So, I mean, here's what the WEF people have to say. They say, yeah, we need to keep producing those things. And as we draw down our population, you know, once we get to, you know, the crazy ones will say, we just need 500 million people, or we just need a billion people. They'll be living in decadence. But again, you're ignoring the fact that these technological breakthroughs that yeah. are being that are going to be coming down the road in the next century or so. We need people to have those breakthroughs. We need more minds at work on these things. Again, once you break out of this mindset that people are a burden on this world and instead, and instead they're, they're an incredible gift. I've said this before and I'm going to keep saying it again. Consciousness is precious. The ability to be self-aware, a tree is not self-aware. Yeah, we are. And, and, and how dare you, Christian? <laughs> I, that's not to say the trees are worthless. All our, right? crunchy, all our crunchy people are what I'm, really <laughs> upset about that. What I'm saying is, is that like we we want more people because guess what? If if you're you know the Elon Musk type of person who thinks that we can colonize the universe, like we need more people to do that. 
right? And and so a shrinking population is going to lead to shrinking economic output. Inevitably, it will. You you need large, stable, growing, young populations. And eventually we'll get to a point where maybe we'll colonize the solar system and we'll go beyond. But the, the point is, is that you need you need large, stable, growing young populations in order to fuel economic advancement because it's economic advancement, it's free markets, and it's technological innovation. And as Nick Land, the former Marxist neo-reactionary guy pointed out, you cannot decouple technological advancement from capitalism, right? Those things put together is what will, will create this, this positive outlook that, that so many of these people want. But if you have shrinking populations, you're not going to get that. No, I, I, I agree. Merrick, uh, Merrick Zelensky, thank you for the super chat, said, no, you are narrowing the subject to them and you. This is how you create divides. And this is exactly the same thinking that is no different from what the left side is promoting right now. Merrick, I, I need to, there might be a little bit of delay here in the conversation on, on when your comment came in. So if you want to, you don't need to do another super chat, but if you want to just go in there and clarify, I'll be happy to try to try to address the the concern that you brought up. Because okay, I, I don't, there- I don't think anybody is suggesting that, um, you know, that this is just us versus them. I, I think that there are differences of opinions and there's different philosophies with respect to how we approach these problems. And some of those philosophies are rooted in the idea of, again, free people taking personal responsibility for their individual actions, what they do doesn't mean that there can't be, you know, some role uh, with respect to, you know, corporate action. I don't mean corporations. I mean, people working in conjunction with one another, but, um, but the ideas are very, very different. Here, here's the other thing I'll say when it comes to, if you look at all of the reasons, Paul Ehrlich, Malthus, if you look at all of the reasons that they suggested that population explosions would be bad, what did they say? It's going to lead to less resources. It's going to lead to um, more famines. It's going to lead to more war. Well, Again, the, the response to a lot of, and, and specifically war over those limited resources, right? Those scarce resources that were disappearing. Well, obviously, okay, I, I don't think you can say that happened. That's not to say we didn't have plenty of significant wars in the last hundred years, but I don't think you can necessarily argue that, you know, World War One or World War Two were happening specifically over a fight for incredibly scarce resources that everybody thought were going to be gone in a decade. That's not what was going on there. Um, not to mention the fact that economic development has improved pretty much across the world. The, the plight of the poor has drastically improved everywhere in the world. Um, the one thing that you could point to is, okay, has environmental degradation gotten worse? And you could certainly point to plenty of examples of that, but I would also argue that the biggest places where this is becoming a real problem are places like China. It's our places like the former Soviet Union. It's, again, the sort of centrally planned command and control economies that would be required to implement some of these environmental policies are the same ones that have been implemented policies that have been horrible for the environment. And that's, again, back to a tragedy of the commons argument. I would also argue that with population collapse, and this goes to Christian's point, if, if you, again, stop thinking of resources as just being naturally resources. There's plenty of things that 50 years ago were not seen as natural resources or, or not even record. The significance of them was not reckoned. Cobalt, right, which is absolutely critical to battery technology and electronic vehicle technology, you know, your phone technology, like all that. That was just kind of seen as kind of a, you know, a byproduct of copper mining. Right. This was not something that like the strategic asset that it is now recognized as that was not the case 50 years ago. You, you could say the same thing for any number of, of minerals that might have had some use, but were nowhere near as valuable as they currently are because of the diversity of uses. What what who discovered that? 
right? They didn't discover itself. People experimenting and engaging in, in technological innovation, trying to meet the needs of other people. They're the ones that discovered the, the, the relevance of these resources. And to Christian's point, if all of a sudden you have a major drop off, well then who's growing your food, right? It's not just who's eating the food, who's growing the food, um, who's coming up with the technological innovations that are going to make all of the, the, you know, use of resources, the collection of resources, the implementation of these resources more effective and efficient. And so I think you're far more likely to have economic degradation, which then leads to greater war. And if you have war, if you want to talk about something bad for the environment, dropping billions of tons of TNT, right, on, on, other, on other countries and other people and other resources. It's also bad for demographics. Yeah, Hamilton, you want to bring up the it, Ukraine it's, chart? It's really bad. It's, yeah, yeah, let's bring up the Ukraine chart. Um, you know, this is one of those things where you, you get to this and it's like, come on. I mean, the, the thing that's going to cause more war in, in, in some cases might actually be the depopulation, not the overpopulation. And, and I can't think, again, I can't think of something more environmentally degrading than, you know, millions of people shooting at one another, dropping bombs on one another, um, destroying strategic infrastructure, destroying, you know, valuable farmland and crops by mining it. Um, you know, U Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe for how many centuries? Yeah, not right now. <laughs> so again, I, I think it's important to understand that it, it's one thing to say, I think once again, the reverse may be true, not only of, um, you know, what they were predicting as far as population growth, but we could actually see the reverse being true in or their predictions coming true for the exact opposite reasons that they suggested and that they would actually have been responsible for bringing about the sort of catastrophes they thought would happen. Um, and, and that's, that's somewhat tragic. Look at it. It is absolutely tragic. And I mean, if you want an idea of a of a skewed population pyramid that has not been caused by either extremely poor government policy, well, it is in some ways extremely poor government policies of invading a sovereign nation. Um, take a look at uh, the demographic pyramid of Ukraine here. This is just incredible. I mean, I'm going to try to describe this for our audio listeners, but if you, again, when you're done driving or whatever, just type in population pyramid Ukraine and be prepared to be blown away if you understand what well, population pyramids are supposed uh, to look like. Go Emil ahead, Emiliano commented that this graph shows that Ukrainian men need to look for older women. <laughs> Ukrainian women and men in the, uh, apparently everybody in Ukraine aged 15 to 35 decided to just magically vanish from the country in the yeah, past two go years. Figure. We, in the, in, in my time in the service, we used to call those military age males. <laughs> But the females left as well. I, so, can you explain some of the reason why we would see like this skinny waistline there? War. <laughs> this is so okay. If well, first of all, you're you're looking at you're looking at a problem with. So, what's interesting is you actually technically have a surplus of males within a certain thing, but only in relation to the females. You're mm -hmm. saying that you have more males than you do women because what happened was is a lot of the women that could leave the country left the country. The men couldn't leave the country at the same rates because they were getting drafted to go fight in the war. Right. You know, because of the patriarchy anyway. <laughs> so, all right. Um, yeah. One, one of those areas where the patriarchy doesn't work out for the, for the this young explains guys. Why there's so many like 35 to 40 year old Ukrainian men that are fighting. Like, like yeah. when you see the videos, a lot of them are like guys in their like mid thirties, not, I mean, there are, yes, there are a lot of men in their, in their twenties as well fighting in Ukraine, but a lot of the like veterans, 
that are fighting in like posting on Telegram and stuff like that. They're like in their 30s. Well, here, here's what you need to understand about this as well. Keep this in perspective. There are not more Ukrainian men at age 25 than Ukrainian women at age 25. There is more Ukrainian men at age 25 in Ukraine than there are Ukrainian women at 25 in Ukraine. The Ukrainian women are in Poland or, or somewhere else. They've left. They've left, right? So what happens is, is you have a combination of, of a disproportionately high death rate for young men, uh, combined with young men, also the ones that were able to leaving the country, and then the other ones, you know, getting drafted. So, so as years go on after the war is over and everybody kind of resettles and comes back in, it, assuming Ukraine to the wins, extent they do, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what that those numbers, the surplus of men right now, but later on, you're probably going to see a surplus of women. Ukraine, well, depending on how many get, in fact, speaking of that, if they Hamilton, come back, you know, it, cause base, basically because more men are dying than women in the war, but you're not really seeing that right now. We'll see it probably in a few years when this is all over. Oh, you absolutely. See how oh yeah. They, in fact, Hamilton, there's two links that I sent you. Um, could you pull up those two? I want to show people what potentially Ukraine might end up looking like. Um, but I mean, the demographics of Ukraine are ruined for for like two two to three generations at this point. I mean, that you don't really come back from in a short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, when, when you have, because 8 million people left the country, that's in addition to the 500,000 people that have already been killed. This, um, Hamilton, there, there's two of them. I just want you to, to go back and forth side to side. This is the demographic pyramid of France a hundred years ago in 1914. So, okay, technically 109 years ago, but this is the demographic pyramid of France in 1914. It's a pretty healthy demographic pyramid, although France did have a, have a very low birth rate. Um, go, go, go back to 1914 real quick, Hamilton. Uh, it's it's a lot healthier of a pyramid than they have today, unfortunately, because yeah. again, Europe is aging and dying out. And um, if you go to the next one, this is France in 1920. Notice a difference? Yeah. You see that deep red gash? So Explain deep it for red, the listeners. For the, for the listeners, this pyramid, again, it's divided between men and women because the people who make them believe in only two genders. Um, <laughs> Bigots. The dark red means more women than men in that particular age group. The dark blue means more men than women in that particular age group. So, Hamilton, if you go back to 1914, you can see that France obviously women tend to live longer than men. So what you see is that like in 1914, you know, there were a lot more 65, 70, 75 year old women than men in France. Likewise though, there were actually a few more 10, 15, five year old boys than, than girls in France in 1914. And that by the way is true almost anywhere in the world. There's usually slightly more men born than women. And I think it's because nature realizes that men get themselves killed quite easily. Um, <laughs> And also, so so, what you see is the dark color means, again, more of that gender than the other gender in that particular age group. Now, when you go to 1920, look at that. Wow. Look at that. You see, you, you see the massive dark red. Well, the bottom part, you see nobody had any babies during the war. Yeah. So there were like no... At that point, three-year-olds, It looks right? like a Christmas tree with a trunk at the bottom. It started recovering, yeah. though, at the very bottom, right? The one-year-olds born in 1919, right. yeah. it did start to recover. But, but there's like, a during massive, the war, like, war, war fighting age and the, gash in the men's side. In the side. 15 to 35-year-old range, there's 1.4 million men missing. 
Yeah. Wow. So basically, it was if you uh, if you were a young man that survived World War One, it was a great time to go dancing in Paris. If you were a twenty five year old man in nineteen twenty, you you had so many options. <laughs> You were. That's the. Yeah, there was you no. Were one of the few there was no. There was no. Survive. There was no French women walking around going six figures, six foot tall. <laughs> like that was not a thing. <laughs> yeah, there was no. There was no whatever podcast in Paris. Hey, I also want to thank. Uh, I also want to thank Yash uh, for the super chat. He goes, "Me, I'll stick to my weekly plan. No distraction. You guys, one lit episode after another. Keep it up. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And again, I want. I want to thank our uh, our community chat because. This, this was another, I think this was another topic that they were asking for. And so that, that's where we get, I would say that's where we get like 80% of our ideas for yeah. our episodes now. Is and I was, I was chat. super excited for the opportunity for Christian to bring out these graphs because uh, probably a year ago, he showed some of this stuff to us um, because I was talking about the whole diaper situation with some of these countries and possible population collapse in some cultures. And he brought this out and it was just completely fascinating to me, but we didn't do an episode on it. So I'm glad that we finally are. Emiliano writes, <laughs> I was hot in the 1920s in France. Yeah, yeah. That, was a, that was a huge deal in 1920s France. <laughs> well, listen, I think I look, I, I think we've we've gone through a lot of the, the topics that we, we wanted to cover today. Um, I hope we were able to answer everyone's question. I still feel bad that I didn't quite there understand was, what Merrick was asking. Do we have any more? There was one super chat that was asked a while back from Scott. Yeah. Off topic question. Nick, what uh, what coming of age tradition do you have for your kids? If any, I never have had one and I want to start a tradition with my family. Oh gosh. I, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a couple Guns. of things. Yeah. Shoot, shooting was definitely, <laughs> shooting was definitely a coming of age tradition with, with all of our kids, our girls, our, our, our boy. Um, you know, they, they started shooting very young. And then when they reached certain ages, we would, you know, obviously we still have to own them because they're not a proper age to own the firearm, but they would have a, a farm that was designated toward them that they were going to get to have one day. Um, you know, we started off with something simple like a BB gun. Then we moved up to a pistol, um, you know, so th things like that. Another one too, that was big on, on our, for our kids is that we told all of our children, uh, we don't owe you a car. We don't owe you a college education you know, there, there's certain things that we don't owe you. There, there's things that we do owe you as your parents to protect and provide for you and everything else. And of course we're going to do, you know, above and beyond that because we love you and we care about you and we want to have fun, you know, times together. Um, but we didn't want to create expectations in their minds. Like our kids never once, like all three of our kids now are, you know, I mean, either driving or about to get their, their driver's license. None of them have, have ever asked, what sort of car we were going to get them or, or like that's, that's not even a question that that is a ridiculous expectation in their minds. And I remember when my oldest bought her first car and she worked really hard and she saved up and she did it and, and she pays her own insurance and she pays and, and it was hers. Like there was like, there's no question that that's her car. Like I don't, and the same thing when she wanted to go through a cosmetology school, like it wasn't that we wouldn't be willing to help, but she had an expectation. This is my responsibility. And as a result, not only did she pay for it all herself, she did incredibly well and she took every extra course she possibly could. And so one of the things I would say is part of these rites of passage is, is when your kid kind of gets that first job, because there's an understanding that there's certain obligations where if they want to have something, they're going to have to work, save, sacrifice, and prioritize. And I think it's an actually very, very good life lesson for them that, you know, just because mom and dad could maybe afford to give you something doesn't mean you're owed it. And, and actually it's going to be better for you 
if you do have to work and sacrifice and prioritize in order to get it. So I would say, you know, again, a fun thing for us in our family was the shooting. It was this idea of being able to defend yourself and take ownership of, of your own security and being comfortable with the safe and responsible use of firearms. Um, another one, though, I for me that was really big was that idea of, um, you know, because again, I, I think getting a, getting your driver's license is a rite of passage, right? Getting that first job is a rite of passage. And we, we put those things in conjunction with one another. Oh, you want this. That's going to require this, which is going to require you to make some changes with respect to what you prioritize. And, and so those are just a couple of things I would throw out there as being beneficial. I mean, the, it, most of the traditions we have aren't necessarily age related, like coming of age related. Yeah. We, we have, Christmas traditions we do. We have sushi Thanksgiving that we do. There are a lot of <laughs> family, tradi traditions. family traditions that we have that instill really great memories, uh, but they're not necessarily tied to what age they are. Yeah. Um, so want to say thank you to Jerry. He goes, hello, sir. Thank you for your content. You're the change we need in this world. I, I appreciate that. Being a veteran, you are what this country needs common sense. So thank you very much. We, we certainly try and, and, um, and again, it's, it's, we're also very grateful both for our audience. I'm very grateful that we got the, the contribution that Christian makes, that Tina makes, that Hamilton makes. Um, I mean, gosh, the, if we were trying to run the technical side yeah, of this, I was about to say, this it wouldn't would be, happen without me. This would be, this would be very problematic. <laughs> yeah, Hamilton does a great job running that, running that. And then he goes, Sir Grog says, I'm donating this for Lalo. They believe in you guys. <laughs> so Lalo's been commenting the whole time on here. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. Uh, imagine worthless Mike Huckabee trying to run with a gun. I don't even know what that's about. <laughs> Sorry, Lalo. All right. Uh, the, but anyway, those were some, the things for us. Let me, let me wrap all this up real quick. Are we doomed? No, we're not doomed. In fact, one of the things that we, again, we, we, I think we've developed something of a reputation that even though we talk about some black pill moments and a lot of red pill moments, we usually try to also provide some white pill solutions. And this is the greatest solution of all. Hey, if you're, if you're worried about this and you're, you're a conservative and you're a responsible human being, go make some babies, <laughs> like go, go have some offspring, go find that wonderful woman, that wonderful man that uh, you want to spend the rest of your life with and, and go, go have some kids. Like I said, they're, uh, they're fun to make, but, um, Overall, we, we thought this was important because there has been such a drumbeat, I would say, ever since I, I, ever since I was little. I, I could remember comments about, you know, the next ice age and then global warming and then climate change and population explosion. And, and all of this was going to be horrible. And, and of course, the solution for all of it was more government power, less individual freedom, less choice. And the, the more I started, and, and again, this all sounds plausible. This all sounds plausible. If we have these major global, you know, pending catastrophes, well, then of course we need some sort of global solution. And of course that's going to include giving more government power or the, the government more power. And I think what we found is, no, that's, that's not true. That, that, is, that is not necessarily uh, the, the course of action we need to take. And in fact, when we look at the various governments that have adopted that course of action, we find some pretty horrible conclusions, uh, not to mention the fact that some of those same governments desperately trying to find ways to mitigate the decisions of past governments that absolutely thought they were working in the best interests of their people based off of the most expert advice that they had at the time. And so that's one of the things I think we need to guard against is this idea that when people make these dire predictions about where people are going, going to be in 50 years or a hundred years. Yes, there's certain things that we can predict. And yes, it's perfectly appropriate to say, if we maintain this course of action, these are some of the things that could happen. But we also need to remember that people, flesh and blood human beings are not categories on an Excel spreadsheet at a university somewhere. People have the ability to adapt. They have the ability to overcome challenges. They also have the ability to do some pretty horrible things. 
And I would say this for all the people that see human beings as a cancer on the planet. If you really believe that, well then stop taking certain elements of that cancer and then giving them massive amounts of power through the centralized control of government. That makes no sense. Even, even if I believed what you believed, right? That, that people can't be trusted with freedom because they're too corrupt. Well, they can't be trusted with freedom because they're too corrupt. They sure as hell can't be trusted with the amount of government power you want to give the select few that you think are worthy, right? That makes no sense. So what we need to understand is that more people, it is, is not this necessarily the problem, right? The, the question is, is we, we should be welcoming of, of people coming into this world. And we should also recognize that when we set up systems, when we recognize objective truth, objective morality, and we set up systems that actually provide positive incentives instead of negative ones, we, we find out that, that people are not a drag. They're not a cancer, but they, they're the most wonderful asset that we actually have in this world. And so our individual responsibility is to make sure that we, we end up on that column where we do respect individual liberty at the same time that we respect personal responsibility. We should be good stewards of our environment. We should be the sort of parents that raise good and responsible children. And as long as we can go down that particular path, I think we're going to find that population growth is not a threat. And insofar as population is declining right now, well, here's what I'll say. All the people right now, look, look at the worldview of the people right now that are choosing not to have kids that are choosing maybe abortion as a form of birth control. I'm going to say this right now. If you want to make sure that we actually have an ideology in the future, which actually respects human life and respects human freedom and respects its flourishing, well then great. Let's have more kids. <laughs> let's have more kids and let's raise them up in the way that they should go. And for the people that all think that this is the, the, the proper approach to the future of society is to stop having kids. You know what? That's your choice. And if you truly believe that, if you truly believe that, then I would encourage you not to have children because I'm a little bit afraid for the sort of world that they would grow up in with that sort of mentality and environment within the home. But I deeply hope people come around to re recognizing that, no, people are not a cancer on this world, or at least they certainly don't have to be. And when they're raised right and they're raised in the sort of environment that both treats them like they're beautifully and wonderfully created and have incredible potential, along with a worldview that respects objective reality and objective truth, then it is absolutely under no other conditions, a net positive for the globe. So once again, thank you very much for watching. We also want to thank good ranchers for sponsoring this. Um, again, I, I just can't thank our audience enough. We, we really appreciate all the feedback that you give us and all the, um, the, the questions, the comments. Uh, this show is so much better now that we are doing it with this sort of live interaction and we really appreciate it. And we're going to continue to try to do that to the best of our ability. So once again, thank you for joining us and we will see you next episode.